Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, we're going to be totally upfront with you. This is the most perilous time that we have ever operated in. It is so difficult just to sort through the information that's coming at us, but more importantly, to accurately report the news as a wave of censorship spreads across the nation. If you can help us out by becoming a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com, you will have our undying loyalty. You make us 100% censorship proof. You help us build an independent, vibrant ecosystem for media that can resist mainstream pressure. And again, guys, go to breakingpoints.com in order to subscribe. Thank you all so much. We love you and we appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Of course, there are a lot of big developments happening on the ground in Ukraine. Also here domestically, Zelensky speaking to Congress, Biden announcing some big moves, some possible openings for diplomacy that we're a little bit hopeful about. So we'll break all of that down for you, of course. Um, We also have the Fed making a Expected, but also very significant moves. Finally, uh, kicking up the interest rates. We will see how the economy responds to all of that and signaling there is a lot more to come there. So we'll break all of that down for you. Um, Trump not doing so well in terms of the primary challengers that he has backed in big, high-profile statewide Senate races. We'll tell you about that. And also, uh, he's pretty much ruled out if he runs again, having Mike Pence on the ticket. That's that's big. Not a huge surprise, but still very significant. Um, Definitely a big deal there. We've got an update for you on some of the hysteria and anti-Russian mania that is sweeping the world with a top tennis player uh, potentially being banned from Wimbledon if he doesn't outright denounce Mm -hmm. Putin. Of course, this is a standard that literally no one else is being held to when they live under oppressive regimes. Um, Also, a wonderful video compilation for you of how the media pushes for war. But this is big, guys. We've been holding on to this for a minute. 
we had an exclusive interview with John Stewart. It was, it was a big not deal. Really exclusive because he sat well, with him. It yeah, was exclusive well, to us. Yes. Okay, it was exciting for us. Um, he sat down with us for half an hour. For half an hour, fulfilled some childhood dreams. Indeed. Him, so. Yeah. This yeah. is a little bit. I mean, I I, I have to admit, it's a yeah. little bit of like a bucket list thing oh, oh, yeah, for me, absolutely. for sure. Um, we get into media, Ukraine coverage. We go back and forth with him on a number of things. So, um, looking forward to sharing that with you guys that we recorded. Uh, what is it like two weeks ago now think, that we I recorded think so, this? Yeah, so that's right. anyway, uh, we've got that, but we want to start with what is happening in Ukraine. There we go. Okay, so President Zelensky has addressed the U.S. Congress yesterday. The most controversial uh, part of it and what bears the most discussion is he played a video for the entire Congress where he uh, asks explicitly for a no-fly zone. And after that video, during the no-fly zone, he tried to connect what's happening in Ukraine to our own American history, including 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Let's take a listen. Remember Pearl Harbor, terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20, 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked, attacked from air, yes, just like no one else expected it. You could not stop it. Our country experiences the same every day. Right now, at this moment, every night, for three weeks now, Various Ukrainian cities, Odessa and Kharkiv, Chernihiv and Sumy, Zhitomir and Lviv, Mariupol and Dnipro, Russia has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. So obviously an emotive speech there, but look, you know, he's got to do what he needs to do for his country and we got to do what we need to do for our country. And look, connecting it to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, where the United States was explicitly attacked, is just simply not the same situation as a different country that is getting attacked. And, you know, we can have as much sympathy and feel as terrible for the Ukrainians as possible and try to do as much in order to support them. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that we keep our forces out of this war and not just our forces, but to stop a nuclear holocaust or nuclear Armageddon, you get to choose whichever one you pick. That being said, his his speech has has been the impetus for a massive bipartisan support of a ton of new weapons to Ukraine provided by the United States. Let's put this up there on the screen. We just greenlit $800 million more in military aid to Ukraine. This includes 800 anti anti-aircraft systems, including longer range, 9,000 anti-armor systems, 7,000 small arms, including machine guns, shotguns, grenade launchers, 20 million rounds of ammunition, and drones. So this is a colossal amount of weapons that is now headed towards Ukraine, greenlit by the U.S. Congress and announced yesterday by Joe Biden. And it was actually announced and signed at the same time, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen, that Biden signed another $13.6 billion in emergency aid and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So on the one hand, Crystal, there does not yet have any real bipartisan support for a no-fly zone. That does not mean that there aren't active members of Congress right now. A couple of different U.S. senators, a couple members of the House of Representatives who do are floating it, basically who want to start World War III. But the second area of that is that we are now shipping 
billions of dollars of weapons yeah. to this country um, almost overnight. And yeah. that was you know, supported with a massive bipartisan basis. Yeah, that's right. Now the the skirmishes around um, whether to provide these fighter jets. I've seen some yeah, Democrats, mix, including Ted right. Lieu, right. saying, you know, hey, we should really be uh, be sending these fighter jets over. Supposedly, liberal member of Congress. There were a few other things that were significant about this speech. I mean, look, there's no doubt. Zelensky and the Ukrainians have already won the hearts and minds of the American mm-hmm. people in a really bipartisan fashion. We're going to talk in the block about Trump. Uh, one of Trump's candidates has an ad, a, a negative ad being run against him that he's too sympathetic to Putin. So, I mean, <laughs> Interesting. Those, yeah, yeah I mean, that's fascinating. It is right. fascinating. So the, yeah. those are the politics that exist right now. In terms of the information wars, there is no doubt Zelensky has been extraordinarily effective. And also just the cause of the Ukrainians is an incredibly mm-hmm. noble one that I think the American people have been really compelled by. Um, so his very evocative language. They also showed uh, a video reel of some of these cities before and what they're facing right now. You can't help but just, you know, your heart breaks for them. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it. He also did, though, something that was, um, I think, very intelligent, which is he did, once again, repeat the request for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, asking them to close the skies. But he acknowledged the politics of this, Mm. that it's unlikely to happen, that it is a red line for the U.S. So he said, listen, if you can't do that, at least provide us with these surface-to-air missile systems so that we can shoot down and and target Russian bombers on our own. That's a savvy move. And it is a savvy move. Um, You know, it's it's still a really big ask. You know, it's an extraordinary thing for us to ultimately provide. And there are— We don't have all of the details of what is inside of this new aid package, but there are some indications that precisely the systems that he's requesting are going to be provided by the Biden administration. So I think that, you know, that angle was likely very effective. One other thing that I'll say here that I thought was significant is he also sat for an interview with Lester Holt, and he said— I'm paraphrasing here, but he said effectively, like, you, I understand you're worried about starting World War III. What you don't realize is that World War III may already have started. And for the people that we hear, exactly, for the people that we hear that are very hawkish um, in the Congress, in the commentariat, in the foreign policy blob, that's the type of language that yeah, they use. Yeah, they're using it constantly. They say, listen, you know, you're, we're already in this conflict. So no, we're not. What, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, Maybe that's where we're headed. I certainly hope not. And we ought to be doing absolutely everything we possibly can to forestall that possibility. But again, I thought it was both a shrewd use of rhetoric and also a very dangerous one. Because again, listen, if any of us were in his shoes, we'd be doing the same thing. thing. You're trying to save your country. You're trying to save your people. Like, give us help. I, I totally get where he's coming from, but we have to understand his interest and our interest and the world's interest are not the same thing. And we also saw uh, Ambassador Michael McFall, who's turned into a real villain and moron in all of this, um, putting up a tweet that he ultimately deleted that was basically saying, like, why don't we just trust Zelensky and do whatever he wants us to do? Um, No, his interests are not the same as our interests. We have to recognize that, and we have to be able to evaluate this in a dispassionate way, even as this is the most emotional thing, thinking about these babies and women and pregnant women being killed in maternity hospitals, of course it's extraordinarily emotional, but we have to think in a clear-headed and clear-eyed way. Yeah, this is the point, which is, look, 
if he were, he's doing what he needs to do. When I say savvy, I mean saying that's a smart way politically. I'm not saying I necessarily support, you know, greenlighting some of the most offensive weapons possible course, to Ukraine yeah. and then having the Russians basically say, well, you supplied them and you're killing our soldiers. And then next thing you know, they go ahead and bomb a U.S. convoy or something like that. I also would not put it out of the realm of possibility that a lot of this aid, as we've already seen in that Russian strike near the Polish border, only 10 miles or so, that a lot of it could get bombed. And that's my question. Who's taking this aid? Is it our pilots? Are we just giving it to them? Are they going to come and pick it up? These sound like minor logistical questions, but if we're going to have a bunch of guys driving into Ukraine with weapons, and we already know that the Russians are bombing said convoys, it doesn't take much. Legitimate targets. It doesn't take, and I already said they consider them legitimate targets. It doesn't take much in order for things to climb up the escalation ladder. I want to address that World War III point, too. If we were in World War III already, we would know it, okay? It's not <laughs> happening. There's a reason that they want you to, they want to gaslight you into thinking that because then it authorizes all of the most offensive weapons and basically greenlights an entire war with Russia. I was particularly upset over the weekend, uh, or sorry, over the last day, when the Polish government has been asking for a humanitarian convoy, which would be armed. So an armed humanitarian convoy of aid into Ukraine. And I'm like, is nobody in Washington telling these people to shut up because you're a NATO country. Poland, if you go to war with Russia, you're not the one who is going to be launching the nukes. It's going to be us. And given Article 5, we have to defend you. It's a Senate ratified treaty. It's a tripwire. Nobody is telling the Czechs and the Poles, and I forget who the other head of, I think it was Slovenia, the heads of state who traveled to Kiev. Yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? You, If you, any of you people died, we're dead too. Yeah, thank God yeah. that all went okay. Yeah, it went that okay. was extremely dangerous. Look, it went fine, but it was an incredibly foolish move for there them was to do also, so. There was also, you know, there was some reporting, because we were yeah. talking about that right as yeah, it was right breaking, it yeah. so we were just processing kind of like the headline there. There was some reporting after the fact that some of the other NATO members were not happy about Good. that yeah. move, and there was a big split and divide over them doing that. Um, I mean, it was brave, but also foolish and also kind of reeks of just like virtue signaling. Yeah, save you know? your bravery like, if we actually you, get into a war. Right, Don't start if, the war. If you're please. actually accomplishing something good, but they did, like, there's no sign that there was anything real ultimately accomplish, accomplished here. Look, in terms of what Putin's endgame is, we still have really no idea exactly what he mm-hmm. wants to accomplish. Is it as we talked about before, they seem to be upping their strikes on these sort of uh, industrial capacity. Are they going to say, hey, we demilitarize them now, we're good to go? Uh, Putin is saying, we don't actually want to occupy and like hold on to Ukraine. Of course, you can't trust any a word of anything that these people say. And the concern over it escalating beyond Ukraine is very justified when you consider the rhetoric that he used in that speech before he goes into Ukraine, which was these very, you know, sort of broad empire-style ambitions. However, we also have to say, remember, before this all kicked off, there was a long time of buildup of troops on the border. There were a lot of military indicators that this was going to go beyond Ukraine before it actually happened. So we haven't seen that, you know, troops amassing on any other borders that would indicate that there's an intention Mm -hmm. to move beyond Ukraine So all of that is a long way of saying that we are not in World War III and no one should be thinking that way. We still have to be thinking of taking every possible opportunity we can to provide an off-ramp 
to make sure that we are pursuing diplomacy because that is the absolute best possible way for all of this yeah, to end. Yeah, 100%. The president spoke a little bit yesterday uh, about these new weapons. Let's take a listen. So when the invasion began, they already had in their hands the kinds of weapons they needed to counter Russian advances. And once the war started, we immediately rushed $350 million in additional aid to further address their needs. Hundreds of anti-air systems, thousands of anti-tank weapons, transport helicopters, armed patrol boats, and other high-mobility vehicles, radar systems that help track incoming artillery and unmanned drones, secure communications equipment and tactical gear, satellite imagery and, 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 and analysis capacity. And it's clearly helped Ukraine inflict dramatic losses on Russian forces. There you go. In terms of the president triumphantly announcing that, that's obviously going to announce a, or that's going to bring some pushback from Moscow. Let's go ahead and put this next one up there on the screen, uh, which is funny because at the same time, though, they're shipping $585 million in humanitarian assistance for the Yemenis, which is what, like one, uh, what is it? I, I can't even do the math right now. I think one twentieth of the total aid package mm. that's currently going towards Ukraine. We're not saying that the Ukrainians shouldn't get support, but it's always, of course, just interesting which groups of people get assistance, sympathy, and bipartisan support for a total, you know, pushback, and then which don't. And we'll yeah. be talking a lot more about the Saudis later on. In yes, the, uh, very later true. on in this block. Yemen is the worst humanitarian catastrophe on the planet. Um, I saw some numbers about the media coverage of Yemen versus Ukraine. Now, I think Ukraine justi is justifiably covered a lot because right. it represents such an extraordinary pivot point um, in terms of geopolitics. Right. It's the with, West also. You know, yeah, it. it's, yeah, it's, I mean, there are broad geopolitical considerations here. And, oh, by the way, the prospect of potential nuclear war. However, um, you know, the complete erasure of the Afghani people now that, you know, the media is over their panic attack over Biden's withdrawal and the the complete invisibility of what's happening in Yemen, given the extraordinary extent of the humanitarian catastrophe there that, oh, by the way, we're complicit in is it really is a crime and shows you this is something we get into with John Stewart, actually. A little, there's a little yes, bit of a back and forth on, right. on all of this. Um, but it shows you that the media always is most interested in displaying the humanity of people whose, you know, whose cause happens to align with what the U.S. government wants and the U.S. government's foreign policy. That's not to take anything away from the Ukrainian cause or their suffering or their humanity. It's just to say we'd like to see that humanity displayed in a yeah. more consistent way all around the world. Absolutely. Let's get to the diplomatic section of this. So let's go ahead and put this next one up there on the screen, which is that while all of this call for a no-fly zone and arms is happening in English and in Washington, in Ukraine and in their relations with Russia, there's a little bit of a different tack. So Ukrainian President Zelensky says that Ukraine will not become a member of NATO. Instead, he calls for new formats of interactions with the West and security guarantees. That obviously is a huge development, especially if you pair it with some significant progress in the peace talks. Let's put this next one up there, please, which is that Zelensky's talks with Russia, he says, are starting to, quote, sound more realistic. He adds this caveat. However, time is still needed for the decisions to be in Ukraine's interests. Our heroes give us the time defending Ukraine everywhere. Now, if you add in Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, there's some more. He says, quote, there is hope for reaching a compromise with Ukraine at the peace talks and says, quote, 
there are absolutely specific wordings that are close to being agreed, which is specifically on neutrality for Ukraine and security guarantees for Russia. So we have brought you previously kind of if the best case scenario, here's how it would go. The Kremlin said that they're pursuing demilitarization. They could claim through their military campaign, we've demilitarized Ukraine. We have destroyed their defense Mm -hmm. industrial base. On the Ukrainian side, they have to recognize Crimea. They have to recognize the DNR, the LHR, those breakaway Eastern republics. And they have to guarantee in their constitution that they will never join NATO or the European Union, any sort of, quote, Western bloc. However, as long as they get to keep their political leadership, that's not a terrible deal, given that it would completely take away all of the, uh, it would take, you know, the Russian forces would withdraw. They get to keep their political regime. They get to keep defensive weapons. At the same time, can you really trust somebody who's bombing the hell out of your country and who's just invaded you? Yeah, not I that. don't know. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's tough, right? So it's easy for us to say here on this side of the Atlantic, oh, you should take that deal. But over there, obviously, there's some bitter feelings. But from their, uh, from their speech— it's not a bad thing. Yeah. And things are also ramping up into U.S. contact with Russia, too. Yeah, so a few more details about what is being reported in the sort of draft peace deal here. First of all, I think it's important to say that there is no way of knowing that the Russians are actually negotiating in good faith. Yeah, zero. That's right. the massive caveat here. And in fact, um, Max Sedan, is that how you say his yes, last Max, name? Yes, yeah. um, He's been a, a wonderful follow during all of this and has done some of the best reporting, I think, on the potential outlines of a peace deal. And a Ukrainian source told him, listen, there's a likelihood this is trickery and illusion. They lie about everything, Crimea, the buildup of troops on the border, and the hysteria over the invasion. So that's the gigantic caveat that hangs over all of this. But we have to have some hope that these peace deal, that a peace deal is potentially going to come together. Some of the other details here is that uh, they say the 15-point draft would involve Kyiv renouncing its ambitions to join NATO. They seem to be ready to do that. That seems to be maybe, you know, kind of the lowest hanging fruit. And promising not to host foreign military bases or weaponry Mm. in exchange for protection from allies like the U.S., U.K., and Turkey, according to people who are involved. However, the nature of Western guarantees for Ukrainian security and their acceptability to Moscow, that could prove to be a big obstacle to any deal, as could the status of the country's territory seized by Russia and its proxies in 2014. So those are the big sticking points. If Ukraine says, okay, we're going to quote-unquote, demilitarize, not have offensive capabilities, not host foreign bases on our soil. In exchange for that, we need some kind of a security guarantee from the West, from the U.S., from the U.K., from Turkey and others. What does that look like? What does that language look like? First of all, we, you know, have a vested interest in knowing what those sort of security guarantees look like. But that's also where you could have an issue with Moscow and then, of course, negotiating over those territories. So, Those are the sticking points, but the fact that you do have language on both sides indicating we're getting closer together and you no longer have the Russians talking about Mm denazification, which was the thing that really was just this broad brush, like anyone that we don't like that opposes us, we consider a Nazi and we want to get out of there. That also is a hopeful indication. Those are totally hopeful. And the reason why we should support this is, look, also if you're Ukraine, you need to show the world you did everything possible in order to put an end to this thing. And then if the Russians do break their word, and let's say they're using this as a guise in order to launch a full-scale military attack, then the sympathy of the world will only be even more so on your side, if that's some trickery that they're up to. It's clear that the U.S. is now 
now taking more of a diplomatic role with Russia. The first U.S. diplomatic contact, let's put this up there on the screen, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had a call with his counterpart on the Secretary of Russian National Security. Now, look, in terms of the statement, you don't get very much out of it. The fact that the call took place at all, though, that's significant. That's a good thing. Have direct lines of communication. Talk to your adversaries. Talk what the sticking points are. We're not going to know what the details are, but in the context of where the peace deal possibly could be going, it's all a good thing. Let's put this next one up there, which is that the Russians have released a 15-point tentative peace plan that would include a ceasefire and a Russian withdrawal. Now, to be clear, this is the Russian demands. Um, what exactly is a part of this is, like we said, there's the Ukrainian constitutional commitments on NATO. There's also a guarantee of – semi-guarantee of the political leadership in Kiev. But the most significant demands are the ones that we have already put out. Yeah. Now, the important thing is that the document exists. Yes. Let me say one other thing yeah. about this in terms of uh, the U.S. Ryan Gribbs. So the lawmakers are very eager. We, we showed you the mm -hmm. aid package that's been rushed together, the massive amount, I mean, truly extraordinary amount of weapons that we flooded the zone with in Ukraine. Um, U.S. lawmakers are very keen on that part, and yeah. they like to talk about that part a lot. Uh, Ryan Grimm has been pressing Jen Psaki on, hey, Zelensky says, you know, give us these weapons, mm -hmm. but the other part of his demand is help us more with the diplomacy. Right. Have you or will you empower him in those negotiations to be able to say to Russia, if you do X, Y, and Z, the U.S. and NATO will roll back their sanctions? Mm -hmm. Because that gives him a lot more ability and a lot more power in those negotiations. You know, if we're, this is the massive stick that we've tried to use to batter Russia into submission here and get them to be reasonable in these talks, which is, you know, uh, uh, kind of a little bit of wishful thinking, but this is the giant stick that we've used. You have to be able to empower Zelensky to be able to say, hey, you, you do this, then we're going to us and our allies are right. going to roll back these sanctions. The administration has not said whether they're willing to do that. And Ryan pressed Saki at press briefing, you know, on exactly that. And she really wouldn't answer. <laughs> so, you know, it's just another, this is another sign of the time, sign of where the bipartisan consensus is. They're all for sending all kinds of weapons and offensive capability and supporting the Ukrainians with, you know, I mean, we've talked about some of the intelligence that's in the coordination, military coordination, which is quite extraordinary as well. But when it comes to the diplomatic front and how we actually build this off-ramp and hopefully resolve this conflict, we get a lot less discussion. You have very few lawmakers pressing the administration on this. Of course, the media, and we'll get to the media later on, has nothing to say or, pushing them in the direction of diplomacy. Right. It's always in the direction of escalation. It's always in the direction of more sanctions, more weapons, and all of that. So that's another thing to, to keep an eye on. To my mind, I think Rokana is one of the only representatives who's really been talking about not just the military and the sanctions, but also, hey, we've got to empower the Ukrainians as much as possible in these diplomatic talks. Yeah, that's right. You know, the way, the ideal is that the way this works is that if the two of them, the Ukrainians and the Russians, can agree on some sort of framework, then the great powers need to get involved. And it would be Ukraine and it would be Russia, the European Union, the United States, Russia, and China. And if those three, obviously Russia, you know, included in there, if those groups can come together and agree on a rollback with the sanctions, it would look a lot like the ideal 
deal of the Iran deal. That's how we got with the P5 plus one deal was to negotiate and create, you know, the architecture of the great powers, both in economic might and military might, coordinate that towards a singular goal. That is a possible way this could get done. Look, this is all wishful thinking. All of this could be a ruse. And, I've, you know, we've seen enough of these fall apart. I think I watched something like 20 ceasefires not happen in, C- in Syria. So don't get your hopes up. They almost always fail. Uh, but, I, you know, a paper I remember reading in grad school, which used to give me hope, was the more attempts at a ceasefire— the more likely an eventual ceasefire is likely to happen. Yeah. So I, I, if I, that may sound uh, like a tautology, but what it is is that the more attempts that you have at peace, even though they're very extremely likely to fail, the more likely you actually are to have peace in the end. So trying to open lines of communication, yeah. which seem futile, frustrating, stupid, almost always break down. And yes, sometimes they do break down. You have to fight to the death, but it's actually pretty rare in the history of human conflict. So pursuit of peace in and of itself is a goal which is not satisfying in the short term, but can't pay off in the long run. Yeah, and there's two other reasons to be a little bit hopeful, which is, you know, the very first talks that were held between the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, relatively short, yes, you know, a right. couple These hours, long, right. and that was that. These have been going on now for days, mm-hmm. and they've continued the lines of communication. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, which you found, Sagar, let's go ahead and put this tweet up on the screen, is, you know, you have some interesting rhetoric here from the Chinese. Um, yes. So the tweet, go ahead and put this last tweet up, A11. Right. There couldn't be a more powerful sign of which way the wind is blowing in Ukraine. China meeting with Ukraine officials in Lviv. So the Chinese actually came to Lviv. Mm-hmm. We have, and they said, we have seen how great the unity of the Ukrainian people is. That's per um, the Chinese ambassador is quoted as saying. So the fact that the Chinese are there, that they are showing some at least rhetorical solidarity with the Ukrainians is also, you know, an indication that Hopefully, some pressure is being put on Russia behind the scenes yeah. to make a deal in good faith. This is the Chinese version of there are fine people on good sides, are, on both sides. Fine yeah, very fine people <laughs> in Ukraine, in Russia, good people. Uh, sorry, I had to get that out of there. Very that. true. Uh, in terms of how Putin is talking, though, um, look, the hot language that continues towards the Russian people is very much there. Here he gave an address to the Russian people. We have a dub of that. Let's take a listen. So we have exerted all ways to resolve the matter peacefully, the problem that occurred not by our fault, and in this regard we were forced to launch this special military operation. The Russian troops near Kiev, near other Ukrainian city, has nothing to do with our intention to occupy the country. That's not our objective. So that's a very key. Occupation is not our objective. Could be a lie. This could, you know, they could say they'll stay there forever for peacekeeping. We've seen that before on many sides um, in terms of people. But I think that even though he has the hot rhetoric and the, he called out the oligarchs and all that, he's still saying, look, occupation is not our end goal. So that could be a signal to an off-ramp to the Russian people. We're just trying to read tea leaves here. And obviously we want to be Hopeful, but, you know, it, it, it seems crazy until it's not crazy, until you have an actual yeah. peace deal. And we remain hopeful that that can the, the language around the oligarchs was pretty interesting. Oh, was Some pretty real, interesting. like, sort of populist flamethrowing with regards to the oligarchs, which I think, you know, is probably pretty popular oh, with his I domestic yeah. audience. He, he says he's focused on a certain type of traitor, those who, quote, earn money here in Russia but live there, 
meaning in the West, right. who like foie gras and oysters. So, <laughs> yeah. So he's trying to position himself as like, I'm the true champion yes. of the people, and these rich people are leeching off of you, right. and they're anti-Russian, and those sorts of things. The reality is it's a completely right. symbiotic relationship. And, you know, the other thing I'd say about the oligarchs is I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for them to turn on Putin or have any sort of significant influence in ending this ultimately because, yeah, they don't like the Western sanctions. But thanks to our wonderful banking system, um, they, you know, even under sanctions have gotten richer and richer. So their livelihoods are not threatened. And number two, their wealth is completely dependent on this guy. So without Putin, they don't have the the property and the the rights and the you know their ability to earn the massive ill-gotten begotten fortunes that they have. So. Yeah, there was an interview on the realignment with uh, Nate Sibley. He's kind of a sanctions expert. He explained this really well, which is that the way that we conceive of the oligarchs as an independent power base in Russia, it doesn't really exist anymore. That was the case from the early 2000s up until 2014. But part of the reason that Putin purged the oligarchs and Western influence is because all of the immense pressure that he got on his regime from the oligarchs when he took over Crimea. They were like, hey man, you're screwing with business. And at that time, they were very popular. Mm -hmm. So since 2014, he's undergone a campaign to basically root out, imprison, and destroy their power of those oligarchs and make them totally dependent on him. So they don't really exist in the same independent power base that they did mm -hmm. in like 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different situation now. It's much more like a like a, a top-down uh, autocracy than it is anything else. Yeah. Just something to keep in mind, you know, for people yeah. out there. Who By are the like, way, another thing to keep in mind is we help create the system. And uh, Matt Taibbi very lays true. this out very yeah. well in the interview we did right. with him last Yeah, week. people should go and watch that interview. I, I, it did really well. I was happy about that. Yeah, he. I mean, Matt's always really insightful on this stuff. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to this next segment on Saudi Arabia. So this is very important. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Saudi Arabia considers accepting yuan instead of dollars for China oil sales. So this is a massive piece of news, Crystal. Obviously, it calls into question the petrodollar and all sorts of, uh, you know, things that I talk about the, the bedrock of the U.S. financial system. Mm -hmm. But more important is that this is a very clear signal that the Saudi Arabia are, quote, angry over U.S. lack of support for their intervention in the Yemeni civil war over the Biden administration's current attempt to strike a deal with Iran. And so that is why they have slapped Biden in the face by refusing to take his calls. They will take the calls of the Russian president mm -hmm. and of Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, sure, yeah, we'll buy more oil. Now, China, remember, they buy 25% of Saudi Arabian oil exports. They are addicted to Saudi oil and a huge part of the One Belt, One Road initiative is actually getting more Saudi oil or as much as they possibly can. Now, I found this fascinating because this is a clear signal that they are not afraid whatsoever of the Biden administration, which is pathetic, honestly. The Biden administration continues to greenlight arms sales to this country. We allow ourselves to be humiliated on the world stage by having MBS refuse our president's phone call and their king refuses to talk to our president. They refuse to pump more oil despite our ass. And, our, you know, there's probably some active OPEC collusion on their part in order to keep oil prices as high here as possible yeah. to destabilize the Biden regime. And all of this, I would just say, is screw them. I mean, we have a 
tremendous amount of leverage, Crystal, on the Saudis. We built that country and guaranteed its security since the 1940s or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sell them hundreds of billions in arms. Right now, at this moment, they are begging us, hat in hand, please support our war in Yemen. We need more missiles. We need more whatever. We need your ISR. We need your support. How about this? Screw you. Arms sales? Screw you. Pump more oil. If you don't start pumping more oil, the whole spigot is turned off. I was attacked by some Saudis uh, for saying all this. They're like, oh yeah, we'll go to China. Good luck. Use some Chinese weapons against those Yemenis. See how yeah. it works out for you. Well, not to okay? mention that, I mean, their entire military base is built off of American yes. weaponry. Right. So they need our yeah, parts what are you gonna do? and support. Yeah, interoperability. Well, you're going to start from scratch? Okay, yeah. go right. ahead. Yeah. Good I, luck. I, go ahead I, and do it. I literally, <laughs> I would love to see it. I would love to see these idiots who have built their entire economy run by the West both yeah. their firms, their expertise, their education, they all live here. Well, and not to mention, I yeah. mean, our support of yeah. the Saudis and the Israelis are the two obvious, um, most glaring examples of our hypocrisy when it comes to human rights around the world. And so anytime we want to, you know, hold ourselves out as some beacon of democracy, you know, it's the democracies versus the authoritarians, um, they could just say, oh, really? Talk to us about Saudi Arabia. They just mass executed 81, 81 people. people. They beheaded yes. them, okay? And, right, and yeah. a number of them Shia yes. in a message. This is, you know, a very right. political it's a, it's a message, message uh, trying yeah. to derail the Iran deal. Um, so this is an incredibly nefarious regime. They don't care about human rights. Obviously, they're willing to murder an American journalist in Jamal mm -hmm. Khashoggi. Um the Yemeni crisis is horrific, greatest humanitarian catastrophe on the planet. And so there's two things that are really significant about this. Number one is, as you lay out, just the disgusting nature, one-sided nature of our relationship with them, the way that we show total fealty and it's grotesque. And of course, our continued dependence on their oil is what keeps us in the game with all of that. We talk about there was such obsession over Russian election interference. Right. I mean, this is the real election interference sure. right now. And totally. Ken Klippenstein's been doing the reporting on how they've basically intentionally been, even before this crisis, increasing the price of oil to put the screws to the Biden administration mm -hmm. and create a difficult political landscape. The other piece of this is we've been tracking some of the potential um, downsides of us throwing our financial weight around with these massive sanctions against Russia, which you already had countries like Russia and China starting to build alternative financial architecture so that they can be effectively sanction exempt. And this, you know, the Saudis signaling they're going to now do business, um, oil business in one is another sign of that. I just think that we should take all of this with the grain of salt, which is the Saudis are weak. They peg the Riyadh to the dollar. Oh yeah, you want to let the Riyadh float? Go ahead, be my guest. You know, doing the Riyadh yuan transaction, it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, removing their um, removing their ability to basically backstop their entire economy, society, and military with Western aid, that would take decades. We have a tremendous amount of leverage upon these people whose regime we have guaranteed security now for literally decades. Yeah. I mean, put that all together, we could, if we wanted to, and we had the stones, and this is where I blame Biden 
that. I think the Saudis need to be absolutely smacked around and play as much hardball as possible. This is not a country which has anything but oil. And, and, and same in terms of their political leadership, their society, everything is built upon the West. We have created it. And not to mention 15 out of 19 of their uh, citizens, last time I checked, crashed into the World Trade Center right. and nothing ever yeah. happened. What uh, we should have done in response to 9-11 right. was cut the, the ties yeah. here because, I mean, they, they have been incredibly malign in terms of spreading this extremist form Yeah, who of is the number Islam? one exporter of terrorism? Mm -hmm. It's Saudi Arabia. Right. Look at the amount of clerics that come out of there. They're exporter of Wahhabism. I had the misfortune of living in a Wahhabi country. I don't wish it upon anybody else who is out there. I mean, you look at what they've done in Kosovo and elsewhere, the funding right. of these extremist right. mosques, even in uh, Chechnya. I mean, mm -hmm. look, right. we, I, we should have nothing to do with these people save for the oil that comes out of their ground. And unfortunately, we beg to them like a dog. That's what's happening with the Biden administration. You know, oh, please, can we take a phone call? Enough. Congress can cut these arms sales off tomorrow. And I would love to see a member of Congress defend shipping the Saudis' mm -hmm. weapons when they yeah. refuse to pump oil in order to help our consumers. We should put these people on the spot cool. geopolitically, but there's no courage uh, in Washington whatsoever. And, you know, I don't want to hear it. Bought off by I don't want to hear it about Trump either. I mean, he kissed their ass constantly while he was in power. Jared's over there begging for Saudi money in his investment fund. But I think that's the point, which is that the Saudis' entire future plan, you know, you university funding, all that stuff, is built upon intertwinement with the West. Mm -hmm. Their sovereign wealth funds, they invest here. Uber, all these other yep. companies. Okay, guess what? We have something called the Export Control Act. We can destroy you tomorrow. We can cut all your wealth off. All of the U.S. banks, the malls, and everything that they own over here, done. Tomorrow. Your kids who are all hanging around mm -hmm. in Georgetown with their Ferraris, shipped off. You're done. Sorry. Been seized by the U.S. government. We could do this if we had the actual political will, but we don't. Um, and instead, I just cannot, you know, watching the people who behead 81 people, who have crashed into our towers, just manipulate our oil markets and then laugh in Biden's face, it's humiliating. It's yeah, truly humiliating. It's disgraceful. American. It yeah. is absolutely disgraceful. Um, there's another, all right, let's move on to this is really significant uh, in terms of the economy. It's something we've been tracking for a while. Let's go ahead and put the CNBC tear sheet up on the screen. So the Federal Reserve yesterday officially approved their first interest rate hike in more than three years. Um, there's expectations for at least six more ahead this year. Now you can see, I'll keep this up for a second, you see the federal funds effective rate mm -hmm. over there on the side, how much it has trended down. That since starts in 1980, that graph. And you can see there on the very end, that little tiny tick up from zero that's where we are, okay? So <laughs> interest rates still, by historical standards, um, set by the Fed, extraordinarily low. But this is a major signal in terms of a change in their policy shift. And of course, this is in response to the high inflation that we've been experiencing. Now, in their statement that they put out that everybody like really parses and reads a lot of, what they basically argue is, listen, guys, the economy is strong enough. We've had strong employment growth to be able to handle these interest rate hikes. So we're moving ahead. Um, did that reassure the markets? Seemed to yesterday. A bit. You know, yeah, there was there was some some recovery of you know losses from previously. So seemed like in the short term, not a, a huge catastrophe. But the the balance here, the outlook is very precarious. Let's put this next piece up on the screen. 
This is from a CNBC Fed survey. You now have a third of the economists that they survey thinking that a recession is likely. That is up 10 points from February. A lot of things go into this. Um, you've got one one advisor saying we might be on the cusp of the Fed raising rates at the same time there's a minus sign in front of GDP. Of course, the war in Ukraine has increased the inflation forecast as well. So you have increased inflation forecasts. You have diminished expectations for growth. At the same time, you have the Fed raising rates. This all contributes to a really, really shaky outlook in terms of our economy. And the other piece of this that we've also talked about is— um, you know, not only did the Fed lower rates back down to 0%, but they also engaged in a massive program of what is called quantitative easing, which is basically just backstopping the market. And they did this first, you know, in extraordinary ways after the financial crash. Well, during the coronavirus crash, they did, they amped this up an insane amount. So really extraordinary lengths were taken to completely backstop the market in, you know, manners that they had never done before. So we also got a little bit of indication that they're going to start to roll that back and decrease their balance sheet and sell assets back. And that's the other thing that is a gigantic question mark of how quickly they unwind some of the quantitative easing that they've done. Yeah, this is very interesting because the ripple effects throughout the economy, we just have no idea. It could spark a recession. It could change the housing market. It could change the amount of debt which is flying all around. There's a ton of easy money if you're rich right now, even though there is a uh, there's a, obviously a com- consumer crunch with debt and all of that that's going on. Let's go ahead and put the next one up there on the screen, which is raising it by 25 basis points, but also saying that balance sheet reduction will be beginning at coming meeting. That's another one, right? Because the Federal Reserve has all kinds of sketchy stuff on its balance sheet from mortgage-backed securities and other things that they've engaged in through quantitative easing. Unloading that could itself have an impact on the market. And then when we think about where exactly things are right now, it's just so difficult. We have wages which are not keeping pace with inflation. And the Fed has a dual mandate. They have both to pursue full employment, but also to not have rapid inflation. So at the one hand, we do have relatively good employment. Not terrible, but okay. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have 8% inflation. So right. this is a big problem. And also, the inflation that we have is not really a result of monetary policy. Most of it mm-hmm. is through a massive demand hike given the end of COVID and these huge supply crunches all across the economy that are a result of globalization, oil markets, Saudis, which we just talked about, all kinds of crazy stuff. And you put that together, and it's a very difficult situation. I've seen some predictions that stagflation could again happen Mm -hmm. um, because of this crazy kind of roiling within the markets, both on the monetary side, but also on the supply side. And let's go to put this up, next one up there. Really what it is, is about the level of uncertainty in the financial system, which is that most Fed officials here see as many as seven rate increases in 2022, Crystal. So we could have an interest rate, I, who knows what the interest rate could be yeah. at the end of this year. That would massively impact housing prices, like all kinds of stuff. That's and happening. some people uh, are even saying that it's possible they raise rates even more quickly because the war has added to inflation expectations. 
Um, and then, you know, you covered how uh, China is now in a new lockdown. Now, on the one hand, their decreased demand for gas mm -hmm. could help to lower gas prices, but obviously that's going to create massive supply chain issues once again. So very, very uncertain landscape here. And there is one way. So when we think about, like, food prices and um, gas prices, those are the things that we normally think about when it comes to inflation. But there is one way in which the Fed really did contribute to inflation, which is at the high end of asset prices. Mm. Because they effectively, I mean, this was a massive multi-trillion dollar, as David Dayan says, cannon shot at the markets, right? The wealthiest among us. They backstopped not only the stock market, but also the bond market. So this is why you had these dueling headlines at the worst of the coronavirus crash, where it's like massive job loss, massive numbers of unemployment claims, and the markets hitting new record highs. The Fed's policy is why that was happening, and that was much more about their their policy of quantitative easing mm. and the you know really unprecedented links that they went to there and the type of things that they were buying and backstopping. That's what was creating those dynamics. So you have some economists who say, you know, we we had a housing bubble in uh, the financial that that caused the financial crash that we're all familiar with. Now we kind of have an everything bubble in terms of asset classes. And the Fed has to be very careful how they execute this policy because, yeah, you do have to do, deal with inflation, and that's very significant. But you can have these cascading effects where the bubbles pop, and then there's just a complete collapse. And while you may not have benefited much on the way up, if you're an ordinary person who's just struggling to make mm -hmm. ends meet, you will certainly be hurt on the way down if these bubbles ultimately pop. We found that all that out in 2008 the hard way. That's, that's exactly, exactly, that's right. why we cover it, you know, so in depth. It's because we know, you know, if a company can't borrow in order to make payroll, you're fired. If they can't uh, finance a new expansion or they have to pay more on their debt, you're fired. If you, you know, the value you could, of your house collapses. The, the value of your house collapses uh, through which you have a loan, you're done. You're going to get evicted. You're going to get foreclosed. I mean, these are real consequences that we have already seen. And, you know, the whole too big to fail thing, obviously, that didn't work out so well almost a decade more, no, not more than a decade after the financial crisis. And now it's been 14 years. We're really due for some sort of crash. There's all sorts of wonky stuff that's happening within the economy. Everything is super expensive, but also uh, we have a decent labor market if you're working class. There's a disconnect there. Uh, wealth, obviously, is flying around at a historic rate. So everything just feels completely crazy, and you just never know when the music stops. Yeah. I, and, and when it does, it's not the rich people who suffer. It's you. Yes, so. that is exactly right. Let's go ahead and move on to... Uh, Mr. Trump, he's making some interesting Gotta keep statements. tabs on this dude. Yeah, I mean, look, he's very likely to be our next president. Uh, so he's been given an interview with the Washington Examiner where he made some interesting comments about Mike Pence. Let's put this up there on the screen. Trump is effectively ruling out tapping former Vice President Mike Pence as his running mate should he mount a third White House bid and win the Republican nomination. Quote, I don't think the people would accept it, Trump told the Washington Examiner. So what he says is that the friction from the 2020 election was just something he really can't get over, and more importantly, his people can't get over. He says, quote, 
Mike and I had a great relationship, except for the very important factor that took place at the end. We had a very good relationship. Quote, I haven't spoken to him in a long time. So obviously Pence, you know, took a shot at Trump in his most recent speech. I think it was on the Federalist Society a couple of months ago where he defended what he did, obviously, at the uh, during January 6th and certifying the election results. It's not like he had any choice. He didn't have anything he could actually do, despite what Trump will tell you. But his unwillingness to stand with Trump uh, in order to certify the election because Trump was convinced of some cockamamie scheme where perhaps he could kick it back to the states, none of which was reality. Yeah. And it's it's so tiresome to even yeah, acknowledge to so many of these things. Y'all really want to give Kamala Harris the, the no, power yeah. to like decide who wins the next no. election? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What a nightmare. Uh, yeah, she would declare herself queen for life. <laughs> the point is, is that Trump is ruling out Pence as his next vice president, which opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities, which is, who's he going to pick? One of the things I could see is that because he views DeSantis as a threat, he might put him on the spot by making him, try to make him become the vice president. DeSantis would find it very difficult to turn him down, especially if Trump called him out for not doing so, because... Trump is obviously threatened by DeSantis, and being vice president, you have no power, and it's a great way to keep somebody under your thumb, kind of keep him out of the limelight if you would like. It would be a tough spot for DeSantis to put himself in, but it also would make him make the error apparent, right? Yeah. Which would never happen. I I don't know. I don't know if Trump can handle, like, his ego is so Mm -hmm. fragile, and he so clearly, like, despises DeSantis. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time, even though that would be a savvy move, I have a hard time imagining him actually doing it, because... He's so worried about having anyone around him steal his limelight Mm -hmm. that to elevate DeSantis like that, I don't know. There would have to be some extraordinary acts of, like, ritualistic humiliation in order for for that to ultimately happen. I'm thinking of—remember when he invited Mitt Romney to that dinner? And there's that famous photo and, like, made him, like, beg for the job and then didn't even give it to him. Something like that would have to happen where DeSantis totally, like, bends the knee and defers to him and is just this, you know, leash puppy dog to Trump in order for that to be a possibility. These are total speculations on my part, but I do know that the Republicans like to do cringe identity politics, so they'd be like, see, we have a black vice president, or see, mm. we have a woman vice president. Yeah, so that's true. in that vein, I could see uh, a Tim Scott very much so, you know, tr- Tim Scott ideologically kind of a free market guy, but he was supporter of Trump whenever he was in the Senate. Also, the Trump people would love to have a black vice president for identity politics reasons. You know, another person I think I could see getting picked is uh, Elise Stefanik. Mm. You know, she turned herself into a true, like, Trump warrior. What about, where is Nikki Haley in the pecking order now? Didn't she, she said some stuff against Trump? Yeah, she trashed him in the Atlantic and then called him and was like, no, please, please take my call. And he was like, I'm not going to take your call. What a joke. She's never going to be president. She's never going to be vice president. She's a loser. But the people who have kissed his ass the most are like at least Stefanik. He held a, he held a fundraiser for her at Mar-a-Lago mm. very recently. And he said, this very male could be our next president, which is hilarious because she's actually quite liberal on a lot of social values. Mm. And so a lot of the social conservatives hate her, but mm. it's not like Trump cares about ideology. No. That being said, he will have to shore up a little bit of his evangelical support base oh, if he about- were to run again. So I don't know how that would shake out. You know, there's that dude in Kentucky too, whose name I'm blanking on, who's the- oh, Daniel uh, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, who's the AG of Kentucky. The I can see who, um, He spoke at the RNC. It's kind of like a rising star. Anyway, yeah. I, I think that's that's an interesting, that is an interesting thought because they are really into doing that just like 
like, you know, equally hollow identity politics on their side. I could well. totally see it uh, yeah. if that were to happen. In terms of his power within the GOP, kind of a fascinating turn of events that not a lot of people predicted, including me. Let's go and put this up there on the screen, which is that Trump is not doing so well in terms of the GOP primaries. The former president endorsed candidates who are struggling to capitalize on his support. And if he goes 0 for 3 in three pivotal state primaries, it would suggest that his peak influence has passed. So I don't know, Crystal, what did you make of these? Uh, yeah, so the three, uh, these are big primaries. Right. Uh, three Senate primaries in North Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, where his candidates are not doing well at all. So Trump, you might recall in North Carolina, he endorsed Congressman Ted Budd. Mm -hmm. And he tried to uh, try to cut this deal to get this other dude, Mark Walker, out of the primary. Walker didn't listen to him, so he's still sort of bleeding support from Ted Budd. And at this point, you know, the date has passed. They're all going to be on the ballot for the primary. So that's complicating the situation. The latest poll that just came out has um, Bud at in second place. Uh, this person, Pat McCrory, former governor, is at 35%. Bud's at 24%. And then Walker, the one he tried to get out, is at 17%. And then this is the race that I referenced earlier where um, Bud is getting hit for being like a Putin apologist yeah, right. in new ad spending, which again is very interesting, the politics of that, that clearly it's not where a lot of the hardcore MAGA base thought the politics were ultimately going to go recently. So Bud had said something about Putin, like he's a very intelligent actor and there are strategic reasons why he would want to protect his southern and western flank. We understand that. So that's what he's getting hit on. So that's North Carolina where things are not going particularly well. And not only is Trump's candidate not winning, but Trump failed to use his influence to shape that race right. and get the candidates involved that he wanted to. The other one that we've tracked very closely is in Georgia. Of course, you have Kemp, who's involved in the whole, you know, got on the wrong side mm -hmm. of all the stop the steal stuff in Georgia. And you had Purdue challenging him. And I think this is the one where we both thought like, oh, like yeah, that. I was like, Kemp Kemp's been done. made into right. such a villain That's with right. the Republican base. Trump has been so vocal against mm -hmm. him, you know, that and Purdue is a known quantity that this is very likely to be the direction. But as of now, Kemp continues, you know, poll after poll to have a significant That's edge over Purdue. That's maybe the most noteworthy one. And then you have in Alabama, Alabama, um, Mo Brooks, this is hilarious. yeah, who Trump is apparently just like despondent about what he's doing. Um, so here's the polling there. You have you have Brooks actually in third place in this mm -hmm. primary. He trails um, Durant and Britt. They're both tied at the top at around 33%. And uh, Trump's candidate Brooks is lagging down at 17%. And I guess what I, I think the real problem is that Brooks is losing, and so yes. Trump has pissed at him, but he's trying to make it about stop this deal. Um, he said he was very disappointed in some comments that Brooks made that were really sort of milk toast, where, mm. you know, he said that, like, voters should focus on moving forward rather than on 2020. So he didn't even say, you know, that the election wasn't stolen. He just said, which, of course, it wasn't stolen, but he just said, like, we should look at the future. Mm -hmm. So Trump is using that to say, like, I'm disappointed, and he's even floating, potentially backing another primary candidate. That's what I was going to say. So there was a uh, report last night that Trump is uh, mulling, unendorsing un Mo Brooks and endorsing Britt or Durant, Durant in the Alabama race just yeah. because he's trailing so far. But 
look, his inability to shape these things is going to be, is a big problem for him in terms of his control. And if Brian, Brian Kemp in particular, if he wins, that's a, I mean, that's a that's sea a change. massive risk. Right, I mean, he was target number one yes. of the Trump wing for refusing to, whatever, uncertify the election results in Georgia. So uh, with that, it would just be a massive blow to Trump's influence. And really, I think it would shake kind of the GOP power to its core. Don't take this too far, though. Trump is going of to course. be the nominee, yeah. you know, for the GOP if he wants to. But in terms of his support for endorsement, this is something he takes a lot of pride in. If he were to have a blow to that, he's going to freak out. And the ramifications of that, they're going to be big. Yeah. Well, the other piece that's interesting here with bo- with all three of these races is, you know, Trump is really trying to make these primaries a referendum on where you are and stop the steal. Mm-hmm. And the voters are just basically yeah, not just having it. Yeah. You know, We're I mean, that's, <laughs> again, exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. And so, you know, this is the danger of Republicans continuing to go with Trump Mm -hmm. um, and Republican elites continuing to go with Trump is this is the only thing he cares about. I mean, he's obsessed with the stop the steal nonsense insanity, even to the point of like, this is the litmus test issue for all of these people that he's backing in the primary. And if you, like Mo Brooks, say one thing that's a little bit off, then he might use that as a justification to pull his endorsement, even though I think what's really going on there, as we said, is that Mo Brooks is losing and Trump doesn't want to back a loser, especially when he's backing a couple of other losers, it seems like. But that's what really comes through as the common theme with each of these candidates is he's created this one stupid litmus test issue that is, you know, the equivalent of, it's it's actually, it's way worse than the Democrats' obsession with January 6th, because at least January 6th actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump is obsessing and making his whole political legacy and his whole political program about what happened in the 2020 election. Um, so it's a foolish direction, and I think that these potential losses for him in these significant races shows that it is not even really landing with the Republican base at this point, who, like you said, are concerned about the things that everybody's concerned about, war, peace, uh, inflation, how do I pay my bills? gas prices, yes. how do I pay my bills? And he's has nothing to say about any of that. Yeah, well, look, we'll see how it works out for him. Yeah, indeed. All right, we have been tracking some of the uh, Russophobia, McCarthyist, neo-McCarthyist sentiment that is sweeping not only our country, but the world. And this is really a disturbing example here. A couple of really disturbing examples that we wanted to track for you. Let's go ahead and put this first tear sheet up on the screen. So um, this says that Medvedev, top tennis star, he's number one in the world right now, is told he will be banned from Wimbledon unless he denounces Putin directly. Uh, Russia and Belarus have already been thrown out of the Davis Cup and the Fed Cup, but individual players have thus far been free to continue. Um, So the backstory here is that the UK sports minister, Nigel Huddleston, revealed, quote, discussions were taking place with the All England Club over preventing, quote, supporters of Vladimir Putin entering the sport's biggest tournament. Um, Giving evidence to the Digital Culture, Media, and Sports Select Committee, this dude said it needs to go beyond that, beyond the comments that Medvedev has already made. We need some potential assurance that they are not supporters of Vladimir Putin, and we are considering what requirements we may need to try and get some assurances along those lines. So here's what Medvedev has already said and done. He already removed the Russian flag from his Instagram account following the invasion, 
and he also posted an impassioned call for peace in the world after he replaced Djokovic at the top of the men's rankings. And so, look, here's the thing. I mean, this is extraordinary, and I think the way that I was thinking of it is, you know, we covered the the plight of Peng Shui and Mm -hmm. being very concerned about her. Imagine forcing her to directly denounce we can't do that. Xi Jinping. Yeah, it's outrageous. If you live in a country where you have, you know, essentially authoritarianism and you know that dissidents are frequently jailed and punished yes, for that, of course. it's completely unreasonable to demand these direct denunciations. Especially, I mean, he's already said so much. So this is a truly insane situation. It's wrong on principle, and it's also wrong because it's only being applied to this one group of people living under, you know, with this asshole Putin. Um, right. Why don't you require every sports figure from every country with human rights abuses, including our own, to denounce, you know, let's go down the list and denounce this and that human rights abuse? It's insane. If Medvedev was a Azov, well, like had a Z on his jacket, mm-hmm. pro-Russia, screw the West, I wouldn't, I still wouldn't support it, but I could see it. Yes. The, he's taking the Russian flag, he's taking his own country's flag. Yes. Out of his own body. Called for peace. Called for peace. That is, look, the guy's got family. You know, this is something that we just don't understand in the West. They don't play over there. If you screw with the regime, they will jail you, your family, they can harass everybody, they can take your kids out of school. I mean, there's all kinds of ramifications. Yeah. I was reading, this is longstanding Russian policy going back to the time of the czars, to the Stalin era, and all of that, which is that the number one way to keep you in line is not to say, you're gonna suffer, it's your, your family's, family's gonna, gonna suffer. suffer. Yeah. Who knows what they could do to this guy? If you fall out of favor, you can lose your post at the university. You can, uh, you know, your kids could get taken out of school. You could be denied something. I mean, you could be, you know, shipped off or whatever, some fake jail sentence or harassed and stopped by Russian authorities. You can't let this happen. Like we're exactly what you're saying with Peng Shui. Okay, look, it, I support her right to speak out and not face harassment by the Chinese government, but I'm not going to demand that she continue to use her platform to speak out for it because she, or against the regime, she has family and we already saw what happened to her. Mm-hmm. She had to you know, participate in some weird hostage video where she's like, today is the date and I am fine and having dinner with my friends. Very normal conversation. I mean, these are not things that we want to see. The best that we could do is allow him to compete and at the time, if he competes and uses that as a call for peace, a call for peace in itself is already a very subversive thing against the Russian regime. Yeah. There are actually other Russian athletes, Crystal, I checked, who are supporting the Russian government, wearing the Z, supporting the Russian uh, military campaign. He is not one There of- was a, a gymnast yeah. who, at a medal ceremony, right. had the, right. the, the Z. Z on his uniform. And, look, and was- He can do what he wants. I, you know, I think you're an asshole, but whatever. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, I don't support him getting pulled either. Yeah, but like, Medvedev hasn't said anything supportive of Putin whatsoever. Right. I mean, I listened to his comments um, that he made when this all first started. And he said, listen, I'm a, I'm a tennis player. I travel around the world. I'm interested in peace. Like, right. that's what I care about. So this is, this is insane um, and is part of, obviously, a broader trend that we've been tracking here. And, and by the way, you know— this doesn't this doesn't help win over the Russian people to your side yeah, if that's part of, of your goal. They feel that they are being judged for the sins of their leadership in and collectively punished, and they are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not wrong to feel that way. So you don't think that Putin is going to use that 
to keep his people on his side? Of course he is. I mean, this really does harden them, harden the world into this like us versus them dynamic when you are punishing people just indiscriminately who have nothing to do with this invasion or this war and are even actively speaking out against it. The other one that, you know, this really struck a nerve with me because I knew Ed Schultz um, at MSNBC. Mm -hmm. He was one of the people who put me on his show most often when I was first getting started. There's a lot to say about Ed, but when he was at MSNBC, he was one of the only voices there really consistently talking about working people, consistently talking about unions, on the ground covering the union fights in Wisconsin and Ohio that were unfolding at that point. And, you know, so I, I do have some some loyalty to the man because not only was he that lone voice at MSNBC and basically gets fired because of it, mm-hmm. but also because when I was first getting started, he was one of the hosts that would, you know, routinely value my voice on his program. So after he leaves MSNBC, he goes to RT. And now they have found it necessary after Ed Schultz has been dead now He's for dead. quite a yeah. while to posthumously label him as state propaganda. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is terrible. The journalist Ed Schultz posthumously has just been tagged as Russia state-affiliated media. He passed away in 2018. He was with MSNBC before RT. Russophobia reaches beyond the grave. Ed Schultz is not Russian propaganda. He's not anything now because he's dead. What are you doing? This is completely insane and just speaks to the mass hysteria. It goes after absolutely anything even a little bit associated with Russia. If it's a restaurant that has the word Russia in it, mm-hmm. it's going to be targeted. If you're, you know, a, a pianist who is coming to do a concert in Canada, you're going to be banned because you can't possibly have, you know, anyone who is from Russia even play the piano or play tennis Complete insanity. Oh, yeah, it really pissed me off whenever I saw it. I sent it to as many people as I could because I was like, this man is dead. Leave him alone. You know, their Twitter feed gets retroactively Not labeled. His family. As a pro- yeah, exactly. His family. Come Look, on. I don't know what the guy said when he was on Russian TV, but like, you know, I grew up watching Ed Schultz as well. And I remember seeing, and he never did anything bad. And even if he did, let the dead, leave the dead be um, in this. But look, this is the craziness of the system that we're in right now. Yeah. And look, this is dangerous. You know, this this mindset and this kind of slow roll, even Putin yesterday said Russia is being canceled. So don't think that they're not going to use this for their own domestic I love the way he purpose. uses our language. Yeah, he, does. He, I mean, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. fake news. Right. I mean, He speaks perfect English. Many people forget this. Putin is a long observer of the West. The people who hate us the most, they actually understand us better than we understand ourselves. Yeah, well, there are yeah. a lot of parallels between <laughs> Russia, I mean, the Russian economy and yeah. our own. You know, their yeah. people, their rich get labeled as oligarchs, mm-hmm. but aren't Ours aren't so much different here either. Another part of the landscape that we've been tracking is the fact that the media is like the most hawkish group in the entire country. And they only ever, and not just in this particular circumstance, but they only ever push in favor of more escalation and more war. We saw this really clearly with their coverage in Afghanistan. You know, they didn't give a shit about Afghan Mm -hmm. civilians for 20 years. And then the minute Biden actually tries to end the war, then for like two weeks, they actually care about Afghan civilians. And then once it's over, they again, once again, don't care. And so what we see here 
is a consistent drumbeat. They're not pushing the administration over what Ryan Grimm is, saying, right. hey, what are you right. doing to enable peace? What are you doing to push for diplomacy here? No, they're consistently pushing for more escalation, potentially provoking World War III. This is a video compilation put together by The Intercept of the questions that are being asked of uh, the Biden administration routinely, and let's take a look at that. Why does the U.S. believe they know better what Biden needs than what Ukrainian officials are saying they need the most? It sounds like, you know, we're pretty dug in on our position when it comes to the no-fly zone, when it comes to uh, the MiGs, uh, despite this growing call, bipartisan call in Congress to shift a little bit. So, to put it bluntly, is Zelensky wasting his time tomorrow asking for these things? President Zelensky is going to be speaking to Congress tomorrow. He's been pushing for fighter jets, a no-fly zone. You have to hear some of those same requests tomorrow as well. Has administration shift thinking shift on that at all? though, calling for a no-fly zone. They're a NATO member. They share a border with Russia. How do we view their calls for a no-fly zone? And on President Zelensky's address tomorrow, of course, he is expected to ask for more assistance, as my colleague noted. A lot of the U.S. positions on that haven't changed, as you just said, when it comes to the no-fly zone. But on the aircraft specifically, the Pentagon said last week that Secretary Austin said they do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft at this time. Is that still the United States' position? Would a, a strike in Poland on supplies or, or, or anything, really, uh, automatically be met with a military forceful response, which is really a conversation amongst allies about how to respond? There are reports that a Russian drone made its way into uh, Polish airspace before going back to Ukraine and being shot down. Does a drone into Poland count? Former ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich, has been quite outspoken recently. And she said, we need to mitigate risk, but it's also true that not taking greater action comes with a risk as well, because Putin is a bully and he only understands strength. Is the president showing enough strength against Putin? Putin were to use chemical weapons, would it change the president's thinking when it comes to these MiGs taking the no-fly zone off the table, but at least on this issue? Are you prepared? Can you give us any more details about what that threat means of severe consequences? The president obviously made the same threat last week. Is that purely economic consequences, or would there potentially be a military threat? Wow. So you see there just consistent every question. What about the no-fly zone? But what about the no-fly zone? But what about the MiGs? Tell me more about the MiGs. And to the point that Saki actually just recently noted, she has answered that question about the planes, she says, 167 times, to which Kristen Welker there says, well, here's the 168th. If you want to know why I had to get the hell out of that room, <laughs> that's why. I, rem I remember just looking around and be like, oh, you guys are idiots. You don't you don't know anything. I mean, you're very good at posturing on television. That's, I guess that's a skill. Uh, that's it. I mean, they're unable to see a complete one dimension of the impact of their questions, of their policy, how they can create the, you know, the systems and the incentives of which the policymakers will then respond to. They are outright pushing for World War III. Why don't you send more weapons? Who are you to decide that you know better than Zelensky? We're not saying that we know better for them that in Ukraine, we know what's good for us. That's the job of the US government. They have no conception of sovereignty. And over and over and over and over again. Why not more? Why not more? You can see exactly there. What is the reward mechanism? The more you give, the more praise that you get from yeah. the media. People will give you as much. And then you slow walk yourself into a, a third world war. 
That's the exact opposite of what we should want. There is no incentive. I used to ask this stuff all the time. Uh, my, when, when I was most attacked by the White House press corps is when I would press Trump on the possibility of peace with North Korea because I was most concerned about nuclear war. I'd be like, why don't you invite Kim Jong-un to the White House? Why are, when are you gonna, do you view his recent outrage as a good faith? These are not the way that you get notice in the press corps or yeah. you get clips. The way you get notice is, why are you not more forcefully denouncing the Kim regime? I, listen, I think what's happening is terrible, but I want to avoid a nuclear exchange. The political so, rewards are yeah. always on the side of being hawkish, and this is why. They, I mean, the it. only yeah. time they like Trump is when he was bombing Syria. Yeah, that's a good I point. mean, right. every time— Beautiful sight or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. Brian ones. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. But yeah, yeah. And, and people were like, this is when he became president, yeah, he became you know, that president. whole thing. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, the only political rewards are on the side of hawkishness. And this is how you end up with a landscape where overwhelmingly the American people are saying, we have to do more, we have mm -hmm. to do more, we have to do more, without recognizing how much we've already done, which is ex like extraordinary and historically unprecedented. But because the media's constant drumbeat is, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, of course that's the impression that's created. And this is where the three networks, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, are really basically indistinguishable. Totally you know, this is complete uniparty stuff, complete bipartisan consensus, always pushing in only one direction. And so you have to know if you're the Biden administration or the Obama administration or the Trump administration, that you are going to take a tremendous political hit. Because, of course, the American public, when they see you getting attacked from all sides for not doing enough, of course that's going to have an impact on public opinion. We saw that very clearly with Afghanistan. I mean, that is when Biden's approval ratings really took yeah, a hit to and have never recovered because you had such a consistent drumbeat from the press. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. You know, you've got a lot of legislators. You already see a shift now. You've got some Democrats now calling for, hey, we got to get these fighter jets to them as well. No fly zone still is mostly off the table. But this is how you end up putting a lot of pressure on the politicians who all want to posture as the ones who are, you know, backing the tough thing and, and mm -hmm. doing the most. So it's a dangerous situation when you have this landscape. Combine it with, remember that exclusive story that we brought you, the audio about the White House press corps yeah. and who gets asked questions and Yeah, don't? that's right. Yeah, well, do you notice where all those people are sitting, folks? In the front row. Yeah. That's the mainstream media. And they get to rig the whole briefing. They get to decide how long it takes. They get to decide who gets asked the questions. The people in the back, people like yours truly, who used to be there trying, scrambling to try and get a question. Oh, you don't get a guaranteed question. And these people are the ones who might ask a dissident question about diplomacy. The questions matter. The incentive matters. The White House knows all three of the people they call on the front row who work for the cable networks will be played on loop for millions of people. Mm. And that is, again, feeds into the incentive structure of what they want to say, of how they want to message it to the people. And then when they ask these questions and drumbeat for war, there is no reward for diplomacy. I'll bring it back for the people who are not watching this fully or non-premium people. What I was talking about in the A block and the diplomacy block was this, which is that most attempts at peace fail. However, as many attempts as, many attempts as you can at peace happen, the more likely that peace eventually does yeah. occur. It takes a long time. 
And it's it, you can think of it as kind of a negative feedback loop. Calling for peace is really hard because you know you want to save face and all of that. Diplomacy and negotiation is also very difficult. It almost always collapses. There's almost always incentives against it in order to keep fighting. But if you keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying, eventually you will come to an outcome. And peace is easy. Like the type of negotiated settlement that they would have to come to here, which would involve some really significant concessions from Ukraine, like it's very easy to sort of posture right. against that and, and say, oh, you're giving TV. Russia their way. Right. So that creates all these disincentives for the Biden administration to help support that diplomatic process. And that was another thing we talked about um, in the A block is you hear this consistent U.S. lawmakers very happy to talk about the sanctions. We got to do more. Very happy to mm -hmm. talk about the military weapons. But very little pressure, I mean, basically no pressure on the Biden administration to actually empower Zelensky in terms of the diplomatic negotiations to try to achieve some sort of deal here by empowering him to say, hey, if Russia actually comes to the table and actually does, right. you know, does their part and gives up a little bit too, that you are empowered to say, we're going to roll back the sanctions that have been imposed by the U.S. Yeah. and NATO. I would so. love to see a question. What are the red lines for negotiations of the United States and any negotiated settlement? between Ukraine and them. Would you agree with President Zelensky's uh, you know, ditching of NATO membership? Is that something that the United States would support? Does the Biden administration stand in support of a negotiated settlement whatsoever? Yeah. Great questions, right? You're not going to hear a single one of them. No, there's never, never any pressure for peace. Yeah, never happens. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, I'm looking at gas prices, and there is a very simple reason you are paying so much at the pump right now. It's greed and it's corruption. You know it, I know it, and guess who else knows it? Bill Burr. Only thing I know is the gas prices are high. Which, this is yet another time where I thought, I would just wish regular people were organized. You know? It's like, we told, we made, we made the gas prices go down to like two bucks a gallon, $1.90 a gallon in 2020 by all staying home and not driving. Granted, the government told us to stay home. I ain't fucking staying home. I don't trust the government. Um, they're bombing Iraq. That's great. Support the troops. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you know, we made it go down. So why don't we just all just like drive less? If you're working somewhere and somebody lives kind of near you, why don't you commute? Fuck these gas companies. OK, they keep doing this shit where it was like they didn't know the pandemic was coming. So they had all of this fuel and then we didn't use it. So the supply and demand thing. So then we, we, we start buying it again. And then what do they do? They stop producing it. And then they're like, oh, we don't have as much. They do it on purpose. They're greedy cunts. They pay all the politicians, the Republicans, the blue ties, the Obamas, the Trumps, the Bidens, the Clintons, they pay all of them. They pay all of them. You know, and so they don't do anything about it. But we have, we have the power, man. But you get the power, then you don't drive your car, then you get the girl, right? We have the power to just make it go back down again. Just don't fucking drive if you can, you know, or whatever, commute with somebody else. All right? Do your part this week to fuck over the fucking oil companies and drive less or commute or stay home one day when you were going to go out or ride your bike, do something like that. Fuck these fucking greedy cunts 
who create a shortage on purpose so they can try to make up all the money they lost in 2020. It's fucking disgusting. Pretty simple, actually. So let me show you what the greed looks like here. Take a look at this. Um, Big oil is raking in record profits. And these numbers are from before Russia did their so-called military operation in Ukraine. Their shareholders got burned during COVID. And these are people who are used to winning big every single time. So as Bill Burr accurately assessed there, they are intentionally holding back on production so they can use these obscene prices to pay off their people while your people and you get screwed. Now let me show you what the corruption looks like. Millions of dollars in campaign contributions in this year alone. Three million to Democrats, nearly seven million to Republicans, in case you thought voting them into office might improve the situation. And just take a look at who is at the top of the list for just this year in big oil money. Oh, that would be our friend Joe Manchin. Next up is the likely next Speaker of the House, Republican Kevin McCarthy. Overall, you've got six Democrats and 14 Republicans rounding up the top 20 most bought-off industry shills. Congratulations to them and, most of all, to our entire nation. Now, it sucks that this is the case, but gas is an absolute necessity in American life. Our public transit is crappy. Our working class has been pushed out of their community, community, so they have to commute long distances. Our lives, jobs, and economic well-being, they are all wrapped up in what the numbers on those signs posted on the side of the highway say. As I lay down on Tuesday, because gas is a vital public good, like vaccines or healthcare in general or public safety or education, we should really just nationalize the damn oil companies and run them for our benefit rather than for the benefit of a group of our own oligarchs. Now, I'm not holding my breath there, but at the very least, the politicians who are too cowardly to actually do anything about $5 gas, at the very least, they could level with us. They could be honest about what's going on. But since the truth is rather unflattering to their donors, it shouldn't surprise you that many have concocted an elaborate web of lies instead of telling the truth. Let's start with the Republicans, who've never met public land they didn't want to despoil or oligarchs that they didn't want to enrich. They are leaning into their standard hippie-punching messaging— Gas prices are too high because Biden is a tree hugger who loves windmills or something and won't drill. And also, what about the Keystone Pipeline? I'm sure socialism, CRT, and the woke mob are somehow also implicated. Now, personally, I would actually like it if Biden had made some real progress on moving away from fossil fuels and we never have to suffer at the hands of the Saudis and a bunch of villainous oligarchs again. But he hasn't. On the contrary, under Biden, oil production has increased to more than the first year of the Trump presidency. The number of oil rigs has also increased, and thanks to a court decision blocking Biden's attempts to halt drilling on federal lands, the Biden administration recently held the largest auction of oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico ever, which is projected to produce 1 billion barrels in total. It will take years, of course, for these barrels to be extracted, refined, and put to market. But the point is, There was no sudden collapse in oil production because of socialism, AOC, and the Green New Deal. I wish Joe Biden was that guy, but he just ain't. And about the GOP's beloved Keystone Pipeline, even if Biden had never stopped work on it, it would still be in construction for at least another year. The truth is, when it comes to drill, baby, drill, this administration is not a whole lot different from the last one. And how about the Democrats? Well, yesterday, we brought, or rather Tuesday, we brought you Biden's new messaging on gas prices. Make no mistake. The current spike in gas prices is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin. It has nothing to do with the American Rescue Plan. Back to Wall Street. Wall Street estimated that the, and the San Francisco Federal Reserve said, analyzed it, said the Rescue Plan contributed only 0.3% to inflation. 0.3%. That's coming from the Fed. 
Rescuing our economy didn't cause this problem, but we're working to fix it. Putinflation, I guess, is what we're going with here, because apparently the Democratic Party learned literally nothing from their failures during the years of Russiagate. The corporate wing of the party is right back to using Russia as a boogeyman to excuse their failures on everything. And here's the thing, guys. We aren't stupid. Just take a look at this. Gas prices have been climbing for a year. Russia invaded Ukraine like three weeks ago. Not to mention, no one made you ban Russian oil, something that was expressly off the table just a couple weeks ago and then was quickly rushed through without even stopping for consideration. The messaging on this isn't hard, guys. Bill Burr just laid it out on a platter for you. Your own pollsters have been begging Biden to lean into a populist message on inflation, calling out the corporate monopolies, price gouging, and greed. It is a good mentality of the people who are wrecking the working class. You even tiptoed up to it in your State of the Union address, and people liked that speech. 55% approved of it. You even seemed to get a little bump in the polls from that, Biden. And now here we are, back to Putin the mastermind, controlling everything from our presidential elections to the gas price in your local town. Because that's a lot more comfortable than actually standing up to the donor class and corporate power and the paid-off shills like Mansion and Cinema in your own ranks. And guess what? Those people deserve to be named and shamed. Because not only are they lying to you right now, they are propping up a rig system that pumps big oil with subsidies, making it hard for renewables to compete. AOC gets a lot of credit on me, for me for getting this one right. In a recent thread, she wrote, Many folks run around claiming to be free market capitalists, but what they actually are is captured market capitalists using subsidies and restrictive policy to hold us hostage to fossil fuels, for-profit healthcare and housing, etc., that many wouldn't choose if they had the choice. If you think gas is expensive now, she continues, imagine if we actually had to pay the true price without the insane government subsidies and favoring granted to them. If fossil fuel companies didn't have such tip scales for them, it's very likely we'd be much further along with cheaper alternatives. Indeed. But as long as we're more likely to get the truth from comedians than the politicians who have real power, the more working-class Americans will be left vulnerable to be preyed upon by our very own American oligarchs. And it just drives me crazy. Like, everyone is lying about what's going on, mm -hmm. trying to support their own team. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Tiger, what are you looking at? Well, to preface this, I know there are more important things going on in the world. And to be honest, I wish the Congress had done something more useful, like banning a stock trading ban, passing a nuclear energy new deal, doing something to alleviate gas prices, you know, anything else. But they didn't do that. So instead, through an act of legislative trickery, the Congress has done something colossally stupid, bending to a very vocal but wrong majority of the American people. So you see, while nobody was looking, the Senate, by something called unanimous consent, passed where nobody objects passing the Sub Sunshine Protection Act. It was introduced by Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. The bill would end the current practice of clocks going back one hour to standard time every November and instead make our current time regimen permanent. The ostensible support of this is that Americans are tired of turning their clock back in the winter. Now, I guess if it's 1955, I would have more sympathy for that argument. But if people are being honest, most people don't change their clocks. You just look at your phone and that does it automatically. The actual impetus behind this bill is that Florida Senator Marco Rubio wants to extend sunshine in the state of Florida in the winter months, not because of any rigged depression data that they claim, but because it would be better for Florida's tourism industry, and thus the tax base of the entire state. Hmm. I get that, I can empathize with it. The man is doing what he needs to be done for his people. 
But what about the rest of us? The good news is I already know the answer to that question. We have run this experiment before. Truly consider the consequences of permanent daylight savings time. If DST is made permanent, sunrise in December over Manhattan would be after 8 a.m. In Michigan, it would be in some places after 9 a.m. That means that a massive portion of morning commute and more importantly, school commute hours would occur in pitch black, okay? Let's take a look at this. In the 1970s, a similar hasty move was made. Congress haphazardly made daylight savings term permanent. And guess what happened? Everybody hated it. As Josh Barrow points out, this New York Times article from the 1970s shows what hell that it would be in the Northeast and in the Midwest under this regime. Ironically enough, some of the first people to lose their lives as a result of this policy were two Florida youngsters killed in January 1973 while walking to school in the pitch black. Shop owners described having to burn significantly more fuel oil and use more electricity to heat up their workplaces because sunrise was so late. Cities across the country had to spend tens of thousands of 1970s dollars to make sure that all their school signs were reflective. The city of Memphis had to clad its kids in reflective tape to make sure that they were not hit on their commute so early in the morning. So why not just move the schools later, right? That's what everybody says. Well, they made that same argument in the 1970s. And the response was, people have jobs, and it's not like start times for work vary across seasons, and it would be hard on parents. Maybe if you're a white-collar worker, but not for working-class folks, especially on shift work. Within nine months of doing this idiotic policy before, Congress repealed the decision because people hated it so much. The regime of darkness in the morning was dangerous for kids. It made people depressed to spend such long morning hours in the dark, and governors of the Northeast and Midwest states were the very first to beg for it to be over. Now, I know Russia is verboten these days, but they tried this too in 2012. Initial polling showed that it would be a success to adopt permanent summertime. And even in an autocratic country like Russia, Putin had to reverse course, saying that he heard the concerns of those in Siberia and in northern Russia and that they would bring back standard time. Everybody says that they would like it, but that's just because the grass is always greener on the other side. Advocates for this policy have invented all sorts of fake arguments. Oh, but did you know it causes health benefits because people have a spike in heart attacks when the cl clocks jump forward? Well, yeah, that's technically true, but as sleep scientist Matthew Walker has said, when clocks gain an hour, there's also a drop in heart attacks, which is basically commiserate. So in other words, it's a wash. The real problem is you people need to get more sleep, which is another common argument in favor of permanent daylight savings time. Oh, but the clocks jumping around disrupts my sleep. Yes, that is true very much in the short term. But okay, for a day or two, right? But as legendary Stanford neuroscientist Andrew Huberman has laid out in his podcast, backed up by expertise from the National Institute of Health, viewing early sunrise uninterrupted is vital to setting your circadian clock and helping you get better and healthier sleep at night. Any limitation of early sunlight, which is what this would do, intentionally limit one of the most vital resources that exists in biology to all of you getting better sleep. Look, I get it. I don't work a nine to five job anymore, obviously, so I don't have to suffer the indignity of getting out of work and it being pitch black. But I did it too for many years. The idea sounds nice to have a little bit more sun, but is it? As Huberman points out with this criticism was raised about whether there are health benefits then to the evening sun. If you're not getting morning light, the afternoon sun exposure will actually just keep you awake longer and further disrupt your sleep cycle. 
The truth is simple. Additional daylight in the morning during winter is better for you from a health perspective. It keeps children safe on their commutes to school. It naturally syncs people's wake-up times to the sunrise. And look, does a 4.30 sunset in the winter suck? Yeah, it sucks. Don't get me wrong. It's one of the things I hate most about living on the East Coast. It's cold, it's dark, you gotta drive or walk home, you gotta walk your dog with nine layers of clothes on, you mutter hello to your neighbors and you're all clad in beanies and you can barely recognize each other. It's cold, it's black outside. But that's simply the reality of living up here on the East Coast or in the Midwest. Accept it, we've chosen it. Enjoy your morning sunrise and join me in fighting back against this ill-considered and foolish legislation. Your kids' lives could actually depend on it. I feel very passionately about this. I can tell. Uh, look, you know this too. I am not. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. We mentioned this earlier, but we did have a big interview. We're very excited about. It. They actually reached out to us. Yeah, I was shocked. We're like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, James came in like yeah. John Stewart. He wants to come on. We uh, thought he was literally. Joking. I thought he was joking. Yeah. yeah. So, and not only did he come on, we got to sit with him for 30 minutes. Um, let's go ahead and put up, we have his uh, show. We've got a little screen right. we can put up. It's called The Problem with John Stewart. Mm-hmm. I've been watching it pretty regularly. There it is, Problem with John Stewart. He's got a new season um, that has just started, and I think it's really excellent. The format is different from The Daily Show. He kind of does like a Daily Show-type monologue at yep. the beginning. Right. Um, in my opinion, his political commentary is a little bit sharper than it used to be, which I appreciate. More nuanced, too. He's had more time. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true, too. I mean, it's not daily. Mm-hmm. So you have time to really sit with each topic. And then he pulls in. Then it gets very serious. He pulls in experts and has a panel discussion. And he goes and does these very hard-hitting interviews yeah. with high-level people, you know, whether it's Janet Yellen or Jamie Dimon. Mm-hmm. I think he especially shines when it comes to the economic topic. So anyway— Um, We had a chance to sit with Jon Stewart. We're going to play that interview for you now. And then on the other side, we're going to talk about some pieces that we wanted to get into but didn't have a chance. Let's take a look. All right, guys. I can hardly believe I am saying these words. But joining us now, the former host of The Daily Show and the current host of The Problem with Jon Stewart, the one and only Jon Stewart. Welcome. Great to have you. Good to see you, sir. Oh. Hold on. Hold on. I'm about to make my entrance. There he is. Wow. <laughs> a little bit older than very, I remember, but very looks dramatic. Good. Yeah. Um, pretty good, right? Yeah, I thought, no, that, good. I thought that was pretty good. So I I really have genuinely been enjoying the yeah. show. We've actually talked about it here on Breaking Points a couple of times, but um, let's just start oh, with. Thank you. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, what was the sort of creative spark that led you to create this show and decide to come back into the media space at this time? Uh, I, I think it was that, that sense of ha- having worked down in, in Washington, The Daily Show was kind of an exercise in catharsis, an exercise in, uh, you know, sitting in your underwear yelling at the TV screen. And uh, th- th- there was a certain uh, impotent rage to it. But it also, for, for my creative mind, ran its course. I didn't, I wasn't quite sure how to evolve it anymore. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what else to do with it, and I don't, and it became, I, I didn't want it to become a caricature or become rote, and you don't want to stay somewhere just because uh, mm-hmm. they're letting you. Uh, and, and you can see now, like, the other folks that had been on it have worked and evolved it into these different forms that have been really cool to see. You know, Oliver and Trevor and Sam, and, like, they've they've moved it and made it 
their voice. And, and that's kind of, that's the creative process. But I couldn't, for me, uh, I, just, I just needed to, to step away and kind of engage more in, in the real world. Uh, and so after having done that uh, and seeing how the, the halls of power have a relationship with their constituents, but it's not, it's not one that is necessarily grounded in their needs or the necessities or their reality. Yeah. Mm. And so it stemmed from the idea of like, why is that gap so difficult to bridge? Uh-huh. And it seems fucking simple. Like, to be honest with you, <laughs> a lot of this stuff seems simple. So it was like, you know, the, the impetus of the show is just why not? Right. You know, you'd have, you, you'd have these constituencies with these very real and urgent issues. You'd have the stakeholders in those issues very articulately stating what their, uh, what their problem is or what their... Uh, you know, what the process is or the perversion of that process. And then you have people who have an ability to affect change over that disconnected from it. So the idea for the show is sort of simple, which is set the map on where the kind of corruption or perversion is in whatever issue we're talking about. Let some of the stakeholders express how that corruption or perversion affects what they're trying to accomplish or affects their lives. And then try and talk to somebody who might have a sense of how you could overcome that. Or yeah, is it was, in a position where they could affect it. It's really interesting to see you in the That's new sort format. Of long-winded. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's fine. The, we're on the podcast. You don't have to worry about the commercial breaks or whatever. <laughs> we got that's, limitless time. That's, that's, <laughs> what, that, that's what I thought. That's what and I thought. What I enjoyed is that while you were a source for me whenever you were on The Daily Show, you would always famously say, like, I'm a comedian, I'm not delivering the news. But here, you've really embraced both the comedy aspect, the explainer aspect, and then the news-making interviews. So how has that kind of changed your, not even calculus, but like the way that you guys come up with the constructs of the show? Because to sit down with a Bob Iger or to sit down with a Jamie Dimon, to sit down with the people that you are and mm-hmm. to push them in a way that, or uh, the Secretary of, of Veterans Affairs. Both those are not necessarily things that might have happened in the previous era, and you've gen- you've affected change. I mean, I think single-handedly are responsible for the word "burn pits" being uttered by the President of the United States in the State yeah. of the Union. How is uh, that? How have you reflected on that in the current in the context of the current show? Well, I, I don't know. So, the, part of it is Daily Show made its money on volume. You know, we were there. <laughs> So, you know, we had to do four, four shows a week. So you're, you're always there. So you would have those types of interviews, but you would also have, uh, you know, the third lead on new girl and also (laughs) somebody who wrote a book about how they built the Pentagon. So it was this wide variety of things where you'd have a, you know, someone was asking me, well, you know, there's an earnestness to the show and, and, and how is that? And, and I feel like the daily show was very earnest you may have thought it was cynical, but it, it wasn't. It was more pathetically earnest and idealistic. The only difference is we would have a correspondent deliver that earnestness with archness. They would mm-hmm. they would approach it from the arch position, and then I would say, that sounds crazy. You know, I, <laughs> I would be the, the mirror to say to the uh, person who is delivering an arch premise, 
but that sounds like it's backwards. Wah, wah. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of people on the show back when I was doing it that were newsmakers from Rumsfeld to Sebelius to Pelosi to right. all these people that were Judith Miller. Um, but I think it got in, in the in volume. It's forgiving in one sense in that when you fuck up a show or you're not doing it well or, you know, you can come back and take another crack at it the next day. But also everything blended together in kind of a stream of it. There becomes a certain meaninglessness yeah. mm. to right. volume. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it, all it is is it just plays into the churn. Yeah. I no, totally. we totally get it. I mean, we experienced that. I don't know if you know our trajectory at all, but we were— this show used to be at the Hill, and it was five days a week. And we've taken it independent okay. and intentionally scaled it back to three days a week. Because, yeah, you just get in the cycle where you're like, you realize you're talking about stories that you don't actually really care about. Exactly. That you don't actually really think are a great use of the audience's time. You're hosting guests that you're mm -hmm. like, this person's not really adding anything to the conversation. So for us, three days a week has been a good sweet spot in terms of being able to, we do a daily monologue, each of us think about, mm -hmm. have a topic that we have time to get invested in. So I definitely hear that. I wanted to ask you, um, you've got a, a great new episode out on the media. We do a lot of media critique here as well. So I want to dig into that a little bit more. But one of my favorite mm -hmm. episodes that you did was on the economy. And you took apart the sort of like moral panic over socialism and also really pointed out that, guess what, guys? We have a lot of socialism for the rich. It's only when it's, you know, to benefit the working class that suddenly we have these moral panics. And it just struck me watching that episode that um, the critique and the commentary was, to my ears, a little bit sharper, a little bit more pointed than from the Daily Show era. And first of all, I wonder if you agree with that. And if you feel like your politics have evolved or changed uh, over the interim since you were, you know, last doing The Daily Show. Um, I mean, I think my politics are relatively consistent. Mm -hmm. It's that, I mean, honestly, you could have lifted that, and I probably did, the socialism for corporations to pit directly from The Daily Show. Again, I think it's got to do with having a little bit more time to craft something uh, that can be a little bit more specific and a little bit more surgical. I think when you're, you know, comedy in general, and, and especially as I wielded it, is, is pretty reductive just in, just in general. Uh, it's, you know, it, comedy is a distillation of a variety of biases and prejudices into, a, you know, a, a kind of a catch-all bucket. And so I think for... For this, it was about trying to deconstruct the narrative of what is considered socialism. It's the idea that for a certain status quo population in America, an entitlement is just basically shit you don't need. Mm -hmm. And a stimulus is shit you need that you think <laughs> is important. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's trying to make that point that if you look at the status quo mainstream distillation of our economic policy. We have this identity. The, the show always tries to exist in the difference between what the image of something is versus the room where that image is planned, mm. the meeting where they design 
that image. Sometimes it's purposeful, sometimes it's by happenstance, sometimes it's malevolent, sometimes it's just blind spots and ignorance, but it, it's, it's looking at that and it's pretty clear that the image of the United States as a beacon of free market capitalism where the government doesn't choose winners and losers and just this laissez-faire invisible hand creates the wealth. This is, this is how God intended money to be made is a fabrication mm -hmm. and a fallacy. And I think the whole point of the episode was to show that as specifically as we could and to show that, that it's all a manipulation. It's just a question of where the powers that be decide to put the emphasis in that moment. I think that's a really important point. You know, it, I remember thinking so much during the Trump era, whenever we had to react to some of the insanity, I was like, man, I wish Jon Stewart was around during Russiagate and Smart. So to get to watch this episode was like a cathartic experience because I remember thinking how important it would have been to have you around at that time. And I think the biggest problem, John, which you allude to is, look, you know- uh, I, yeah, I would have come to your house, back. by oh. the way. I would be, you know, yeah, you just should have yeah. called me. I'd have come to your house. <laughs> yeah. You could have no, had me around. I, I wish. Uh, I, I could have sat on the couch with you and watched TV. My mom would have been thrilled, man. Uh, but when I think about it, it's like, yeah, okay, Fox is bad. Right-wing media is bad. We agree, you know? But the, so many of the same characteristics, the intertwinement of the administration, talking points, building up narratives, and as you point, uh, point to in your interview with Bob Iger, is it's not just that the media is covering fear, it's that the, by their ridiculous and selective coverage, they're influencing the trajectory of policy and of politics in this country is just as easily applied to so much of whatever the corporate liberal media industrial complex as much as it is on the right. John, why is it so difficult to get the people in that complex to understand it? You know, having come from a more conservative background, I can tell you a lot of people at Fox, they mm -hmm. know what's up. They know what they're doing. But the people of the Washington Post and the New York Times, they, they truly believe they're doing the Lord's work, exposing all this, and they don't even see their own, like, their own role in so much of the system that they're helping to perpetuate. That's why I always found your coverage so valuable, is just skewering of everybody, which I think is where most, the majority of the country is. They hate it all, all of it. Well, so one of the, one of the difficulties of the, the the nihilism that you described yeah. is uh, I, I think you have to understand it's about incentives and and mechanisms right mm -hmm. and the mechanism and incentivizing for right wing conservative media is different from the mechanism and incentivizing for what you would consider mainstream or uh, then you know left wing media so yes. It's it's not about a pox on all your houses. It's about criticism of or or examining each thing as its own separate entity, mm -hmm. but being as clear headed and smart about what you believe to be. It's about looking at things on a different polarity. Whereas the mainstream media has set up kind of this dynamic of right versus left, because it's producible. And it's a good source of conflict and it's reductive enough that it's, you can repeat it. I mean, the one thing you guys know about making content is it's one thing to be able to make it. It's another thing to be able to make it all the time, every yep. day, consistently. Mm -hmm. 
And that's their job. They're on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or you have talk radio, or you have all these other things that have to be producible. And so producibility is an enormous foundational principle of the dynamic of right and left. What, what we're trying to do is look at it from a principle of corruption versus integrity or noise versus clarity. Don't always mm. uh, obviously achieve that, but, but, but that's the goal. So, you know, when you say something like the right-wing media, yeah, that's bad, but the left-wing media is bad too. It, mm. It's not a question of them both being bad. It's a question of what is one trying to achieve What's the incentive behind what they're trying to achieve and how are they going about achieving it? Yeah. And I do think there's a big difference between what CNN does and what MSNBC does. And I think there's a big difference between what all of them do and what the, the right-wing media sphere is much more directed and much more politically aligned and entwined. I mean, you saw that after January 6th. The text messages back and forth were between the president of the United States and his handlers and Hannity and Ingram. And, you know, the, the right, the right wing's media is a much stronger arm of a political movement. That is CNN true. And Emerson. Although I do want to, I do want to say, I mean, CNN just got caught yeah. in a big scandal where the president of the network mm -hmm. and his mistress were are stand accused of you know helping Governor Cuomo at the height of his popularity, coordinating talking points, having him be interviewed directly right. by his brother in prime time. Um, Jen Psaki is now yep. being floated as a new host at either CNN or MSNBC. And Simone Sanders, who was comms director for the vice president, is at MSNBC. So oh, I'm not there, sure that there's, there's a lot that of much political doors. detachment. Yeah. Uh, but there's revolving doors. And it's what I'm saying is the coordination. You can't have it on the left because the left is a much more fractious coalition. Hmm. What I'm saying is their bias tends more towards sensationalism, yes. right? And easy narrative. And it's not relentlessly focused on uh, uh, achieving political aims. They're just yeah. not. And if they are, they're really bad at it. And I would say <laughs> the example you have about Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo yeah. is much more about protecting one of their own than it is about protecting a political movement. That it, it, it had a lot more to do with uh, nepotism and the cozy relationship between those industries than it did about, you know, trying to advance Medicare for all. Right. Or, you know, well, the, the right-wing media is about, and, and you've seen them have to flip now when you look at their coverage of Russia and Ukraine. Right. Mm -hmm. So Russia is much more politically aligned with our political right. They're defenders of they're an Orthodox Christian state, defenders of mm -hmm. Western value. So there was great uh, kind of common purpose with our right wing media. And then this guy goes like full Hitler and everybody's got to backtrack. But the fact remains that there is a lot of common cause in their sort of politics. Does that make sense? So think, I'm not so. suggesting that left-wing media is the same as mainstream media is the same as right-wing media. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is you have to be able to critique them for what they are and not put them all in the same pot. 
And there it's not one, both sides to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. And there, there's one, well, there was one piece of that that you uh, pointed to there with regard to the Cuomo scandal that I think is correct, which is it was much more about, you know, Zucker was interested in getting the governor of New York, who was this big political star at the moment, sort of exclusive to his network. It was great for ratings to have this little, like, casual back and forth with his brother where they're joking about swabbing each other's noses or talking about mom's spaghetti dinner or whatever. So there was a money and corruption and nepotism angle there ultimately. And that was one piece that I felt like was a little bit left out of the episode that you did on the media. Because you talk a lot about the pressure for mm -hmm. sensationalism, for ratings, you know, anchors getting the minutes by minute by minutes and seeing, okay, these stories, you know, climate change is unsexy, but, you know, Russiagate is very sexy. So we're going to lead with it every single night and the walls are closing in and all of that. But I do think part of the problem is that sort of coziness and that clubbishness, where they're all in the same circle as the very people whose feet they're supposed to be holding to the fire. So that's how you end up with a mm -hmm. situation like Governor Cuomo. And this wasn't just CNN. Everybody was lionizing these guy, this guy at the same time that there were real questions about the handling of nursing homes, about the liability, corporate liability shield that he was helping to usher through that was used as a model by Republicans. And all of that was ignored mm -hmm. because they were all sort of in the same social circles. And it's uncomfortable to hold people that you know and consider as peers to account. Oh yeah, I I mean, yeah, you're dead you're dead on there. And I've said that to everybody who works here, and I said it to everybody at the Daily Show, which is when we all leave this show, look around this room because these will be your only remaining friends. <laughs> you know, we don't we 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 can't have we can't have colleagues, and you know that that cozy relationship and everybody depending on each other for their for their livelihoods and that revolving door is an enormous issue. And it's why the, you know, White House correspondence issue should be taken out in the back and and or sent to a farm upstate. Like <laughs> the idea that because you you can't do your job while protecting access and feelings. Yes. Ever. And uh and I think it's an enormous problem. But I, I think beyond that problem, you have to look at the dynamics of how they're incentivized to make their money. Look, there are people there that get bonuses for ratings, right, In the, on the news. And so that naturally incentivizes it. Salaries are based on if you can drive a better demographic. So those are all the kinds of things that, and they're, they're competing for a narrower and narrower audience. Mm -hmm. And I think if you drill down with almost any of them, they don't think that. Look, I'll, I'll give you an example. The way that they're covering Ukraine is bold, it's brave, it's immediate, mm -hmm. a lot of times it's thoughtful, a lot of times it's illuminating, and it's heartbreaking, not just for what they're going through, uh, but for having to be on the front lines of something so dangerous. But what it reminds you is there's a different model to do all this. Hmm. What it does is point out the superficiality and the uh, general tediousness and triteness of the majority of their coverage. Hmm. 
Yes. Because it's not along the lines of, now let's bring on Van Jones and Rick Santorum to tell us how to put Ukraine into perspective. They're not using the right-left polarity. They're using right-wrong. They're using corruption integrity. Now, that it doesn't mean that some of it isn't manipulated and some of it isn't uh, redundant and overdone, but what it shows is there's another way to do this that's compelling, that is insightful, and within their grasp that they have the tools. And that's all we're asking for is cover it in a manner that is illuminating and not obfuscating. Because generally when you buy into the two-team paradigm there, and they do and they do it differently, right and left and mainstream, mm-hmm. you're buying into a false dichotomy and one that clouds the conversation and, and, and doesn't, you know. So I, when, when you look at that, it's hard to imagine, well, if you've got the capacity to do it this way, why aren't we doing everything this way? I think a lot of it is uh, just current system, system thinking. Soledad O'Brien actually pointed that in your episode. Whenever Crystal and I started our show, actually a lot of what you said resonated with me. Whenever you told the, day, the Comedy Central guys, you're like, let me do what I want, and if you're not, you can fire me. Everybody told us that covering the news in a class first and a nonpartisan way was not gonna work. They're like, nobody cares, it doesn't matter, uh, good luck, all of this. You know, now it's what, number one or whatever in the news category on Spotify, which is not connected to a, a corporate media organization. Now, no, everyone said we were you. idiots. Look at Every, you, come everyone on. Everyone said we were yes. idiots. No, no, big, no big deal. Let's fucking go. Let's fucking go. No big deal. But this is the point, though, which is that nobody wants to take that leap of faith. Nobody wants to try. And within that framework, it's not going to happen at the most systematic level. But it's actually something I wanted to ask you, which is that you are one of those people who's not going to cut anybody's slack in an interview. Yet, you got Jamie Dimon to sit down with you. You got Bob Iger to sit down with you. You got the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to sit down with you. What is the model then for people like us who are kind of coming up in your footsteps? Because we find this problem, John. Politician wants to come on, but he wants to talk for five minutes and stick to whatever his bullshit bill is. It's like, no, that's not, that's not how it works here. And then they say, okay, I'll go to CNN. I'll go to MSNBC. I'll go talk to the New York Times. You actually successfully broke through that barrier. How do the people who are coming up do the same thing? Or is it even possible to have the same level of household ID or whatever that you have from coming up in legacy media in the 2000s and the 1990s? Well, first of all, your goal can't be household ID. Well, it's that, not, that, it's not, to be clear. It's to get the big interview too, but, right? <laughs> right? Well, but but again, yeah. even, even that, what your goal should be is to get really good at diagnosing what are the corrupting or corroding influences in whatever story. It's, it's, a, it's about becoming a weatherman for bullshit, for figuring out uh, how is this system incentivized for negative outcomes or how is this system incentivized to keep the status quo in power uh, at the expense of, you know, uh, fr- you know, disenfranchised communities or communities with less power. It's about power dynamics more than anything else. And it's about learning how those work and being able to diagnose them and being able to articulate them in a really clear way. And if you do that, and if you become really uh, expert at that, and, and then you develop a constituency. Mm-hmm. And that constituency has value to salespeople. And politicians 
uh, are salespeople at heart. And if you have a constituency that they feel is an important one or that they feel will have consequences for them in a negative way even, if it's shame or if it's uh, uplift, if you develop that, then you can't be ignored because you, I mean, that's what, that, that's the right wing media model. Mm -hmm. You develop this constituency that can't be ignored. My point is develop it in a way that's honest and that is looking at systems, not in a political way or a partisan way, but not being ignorant that those are the dynamics which can affect change, but make your arguments, uh, urgently and and smartly about the dynamics of situations and nuance and call out corrupted arguments wherever you find them. Yeah. And that helps you build a constituency that's what it is is earning your editorial authority. Yeah. And if you earn that, then you can use that to get access to do those things but if your access is based on obsequiousness or if your access is based on uh, the care you will take for that person's, you know, fragile status quo world, like that's useless. It does mm -hmm. no good. And you don't need the access. You can do your job. The jobs you guys do, you can do without access. Certainly. We do it every day. Yeah. Have to, <laughs> unfortunately, have to. Um, yeah. John, let me ask you this. What I'm you talking think, about. Do you think that the cable news model <clears throat> is salvageable? Because, you know, I even think about the the Ukraine war, which you said, like, you feel really good about the coverage and they're doing, you know, right versus wrong versus right versus left. But, you know, at the same time, the, the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet is happening in Yemen right now. They don't find that good for ratings. It's also inconvenient for their their friends and politicians because Saudi is one of our allies versus Russia is one of our adversaries. Or you could look at the Afghan mm -hmm. where there was a lot of focus when we were finally after 20 years withdrawing our troops. And now that, you know, our mm -hmm. freeze on that uh, central, the Afghan government's reserves is helping to spark a mass humanitarian crisis and famine, suddenly there's no coverage to be found. So... Given the mm -hmm. fact that there is such sort of like selective coverage, all based on what's good for ratings, what's good for their friends and whatever political circles that, you know, they're frequenting, mm -hmm. is it possible to change the cable news model to be more edifying without just creating you, an entirely just alternative eco-media system? You just did it. You, you, just, you just did it. You just explained how to do it. But don't you have to change to the incentives? Yet, to, How do you change the incentives? Because right now, it's not about the individual people. So, you know, there's a certain type of person that thrives in cable news because they're willing to sort of accept the system right. as it is. But it's really not about the individual people. It's about this system that's ratings-driven, that's access journalism-driven, sure. that's 24-hour oh, news coverage-driven. Well, so can you change that really fundamentally without sort of changing that structure altogether? So... I guess I don't, I don't buy the premise that if you were to cover Yemen responsibly and give it the attention that it deserves or the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, that you would suffer, you, that your ratings would be, uh, that your ratings would be the problem. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be fluctuations, but it's already an incredibly small, narrow 
uh, group of people. And it's designed by Nielsen, which is from like the 40s and 50s. So it's a nonsense rating system to begin with. So to be judging uh, important stories, the larger problem for news organizations is they are really good at singular focus. So when you have an event that matches the magnitude of their news gathering firepower, that confluence works really well. But the truth is they should be able to cover all those things. You're dead on right about Afghanistan. The high dudgeon that everybody took about the mistakes that were made in those two weeks, you're like, where the fuck have you been? <laughs> you know, and maybe if we had covered it with the kind of aggressiveness uh, that it had deserved from the beginning, we wouldn't have been there for as long as we, we were, that we would have a different foreign policy that didn't rely on destroying countries and then being their social safety net for the next 15 to 20 years as we try and rebuild them to the point where they're friendly enough to us that 19 people in a basement in Hamburg couldn't plan an attack. I mean, the whole thing is nonsensical from the get-go. But that being said, these companies make their money on carriage fees. Like Fox News makes almost $2 billion a year, not just for ratings, but on car they make carriage fees. CNN makes carriage fees. MSNBC right. doesn't make the kind of carriage fees that so, they do. So why but do you think then, if it's not a ratings issue, if it's not a ratings issue, why don't they cover what's going on to in them. Canada, for example? Because I I would submit and tell me if you think that well, I'm off base here. It's, Sh it's yeah. chauvinism, but it's, you know, this, what's going on in Ukraine is okay for them to talk a lot about because not only is it good for ratings, but it's also uh, Russia is one of our adversaries, so we're not going against one of our allies. But in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. you know, now it's the Taliban in charge, and so we can't be, you know, see, see to be nice to them. And with regards to Yemen, Saudi is one of our big allies. They have a lot of, you know, money uh, in this town and, and all over the country and a lot of ties to political leaders here. So it seems to me that that's a part of how they choose what to cover and what to go all in on. No question. No question. I mean, it's, you know, the Saudis uh, are, are considered an ally. I mean, it's, it's very hard to think of that regime as anything other than murderous, especially after Khashoggi and, and, yeah. and those kinds of things. It's a repressive regime, certainly. But I, I think the other thing that we have to talk about is what, the people of Ukraine look like. They look like us. Mm -hmm. yep. And Muslims are scary. And uh, that world is primitive. And Africa is primitive. And those worlds, I mean, they, they've said it, uh, Trevor did an unbelievable bit on this, which was, you know, uh, a lot of news reporters going, you don't expect to see this right. kind yeah. of destruction in this part of the world. Like, right. They're right. blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Yeah, How yeah. could this right. be? They watch Netflix. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I think you're you're dealing with a lot of, look, biases and prejudice are rife in, in everything. The question is getting us to overcome the blind spots, getting us to... to you know, not have that, and I've, I've sort of described it all the time as an eight-year-old, eight-year-olds playing soccer. Mm -hmm. There's a ball, and everybody runs to it, and no one else is on the field. Like, hold your positions in other places to give people a better perspective on everything that's going on in the world. And it's not like it can't be done. Yeah, it can be done, and I think it can be done to profitability. Now, 
will it be the billion dollars that CNN makes off mm. their carriage fees and, and things? I don't know, but it'll be fucking profitable. Yeah. And if you get the right people involved to it, it'll be dynamic. And it's about telling stories and telling them well. Yeah, well, we agree with you, and uh, people are hungry for, you know, real sort of unvarnished, as you put it, uncorrupted, you know, attempts to sort through what is a, a complicated and nuanced world. So um, thank you, John, for your time again. And, and, Go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say one more thing. Yeah. Please. When you talk about that, the, the thing that people always wonder is that doesn't mean it's not visceral. Exactly. Or emotional. Yeah. Right. That's right, yeah. It's, yes, it's, it doesn't, it's not some hokey, like, let's all barometer. come together. Yeah, it's just That's trying right. to, That's you know, right. one of the things that um, inspired us from The Daily Show that we tried to bring into this show is your willingness to, you know, to just look at the landscape and point out the absurdities wherever they were. And the other thing that we really have tried to embrace here is engagement. Yeah. Um, that's probably the most controversial part of yes. our show, to be honest with you. Um, so thank you for that model. Guys, watch the show is The Problem with Jon Stewart. We've got a nice little uh, graphic we can put up there on the screen. Uh, it really is worth well, your... I've, yeah. I've gotten a, a lot out of the show. Yes. I think the new model has a lot to recommend it. So um, thank you for your time today. We were grateful. Thanks, John. It was a great honor. And uh, everybody go subscribe to John's so podcast. And, more. Thanks, man. Oh, thank you. Keep up the great, uh, keep up the great work, guys. Thank you, sir. Doing our best. Thanks, John. So there you have it, the one and only John Stewart. Clearly, we had some disagreements with him, mm -hmm. and there were actually more disagreements that we had with him that there just wasn't like time and space. Yeah, we didn't have enough time. He was on a very into. tight schedule. So he yeah, had but to, he had you to know, one of the up. things I would love to spend thirty with minutes with him just on the Ukraine war coverage, right? Because I kind of didn't want to go all in on, like, debating whether they've done a good job or not. Mm -hmm. And so we focus more on just, like, well, why do they cover this one so much and not these other things, which I think is an important piece. But, you know, I'd love to talk to him about what he thinks of the clip we played here today of the media only pressing right. the Biden administration in the direction of war, in the direction of escalation, the way that, you know, the American people have been very poorly informed about what a no-fly zone would ultimately mean, which is reflected in polling that shows that if you just say, hey, no-fly zone, people are like, yes, let's do it. And when you're like, if it means World War III, they're like, no, let's definitely not do that. Mm -hmm. So those were some areas I would love to also get into with him. Yeah, I think, you know, the one problem I had with what he was saying is he's still not willing to really stick it to the mainstream, if that makes sense. I almost feel like his, because uh, I was talking about the party apparatus and he was, you know, wasn't quite willing to compare like the total integration of the Democratic Party or elite liberalism particularly with MSNBC in the way that he is with Fox. Like he seemed, I think, yeah. and I say this with respect, but that is a 2000s view of the world. Like I think that that is a view of the world through which uh, the Iraq war happened and of which his most formative year. So I get it. I get where he's coming from. But I just think things have changed well, here's dramatically thing, in that fusion. Because I thought about this for yeah. a long time after the interview because he was basically like, it's qualitatively different. Fox right. News is an organ of the Republican Party in the way, in a way know, that right? MSNBC and CNN aren't uh -huh. of the Democratic Party. Now, first of all, you know, as we pointed out, like you clearly have 
a lot of very similar interconnectedness. This is right. something we've covered on our show. There's the Cuomos, and you know we're learning more and more yes. about how directly they were involved with him and indirectly pushing back against. Yeah. Right, Simone Sanders. You've got yeah. Jen Psaki. So you have those overlaps. But I did think about it. I think there is a little bit of a distinction there in terms of Fox News really was built to be a sort of like Republican Party booster. Mm -hmm. And it is very direct. Like they have direct partisan aims. CNN and MSNBC, first they were just billed as like money-making yeah, ventures. That's well, CNN, MSNBC, to be fair, had a cool vision in the beginning. Mm -hmm, in the beginning. Yeah. MSNBC fell into this liberal framework because that was what sold, yeah, right? Exactly. Keith Olbermann was successful. Right. Other things, everything else that they were doing was basically failing. So they're like, oh, this is our thing. But I don't think it's fair to say they don't have like ideological aims. Mm -hmm. Their original goals aren't directly like, we're here to support the Democratic Party, even though that ends up being effectively what they do. Yes. But they have very much an ideological mission, right. which is this particular liberal view of the world that they think is just the world. They don't really see the ideology of it, even though if you're us standing on the outside, like it's very clearly an ideological agenda. And I was trying to point that out to him. I don't think it was becoming clear. Like I said, I think some of this is just colored by a living, and I, I get it, like having scarred and all of that. But the world changed a lot in the last, you know, even five, six years or whatever since the, the Daily Show has gone off. And I found that to be probably the biggest point of contention and disagreement that I think that we had with him around yeah. like how the operating systems of those networks exactly work about there was just, a, I feel like, uh, more graciousness towards them than they frankly deserve. Well, and here's and, the thing. is like, you know, his solution was basically like, well, they could just do better. You know, just like putting right, it on the individuals, right. basically like, no, they could they could just do better. Yes. Like the ratings, the ratings incentives don't have to push them in this direction. It's really just about them making better choices. Mm -hmm. And I just, that I fundamentally disagree with. I agree. I mean, there's yeah. no way you, of course, the individuals in that system have agency, which is why we're tough on some of the individuals in the system. They choose to be there. They choose to cover it the way they do. They choose to cherry pick. They choose to propagandize. They choose to lie at times. Mm -hmm. Like all of those things are true. But it's also true that if you don't do those things, you're going to get chewed up and spit out by the system that exists right now. The incentives in cable news and the structure of cable news is what it is. There's no rescuing it by having like, well, if we just got better people in and they made better choices. No, because the whole reason that this group of people is there and being propped up and elevated is because they play well with the system as it exists. So as long as this is the landscape driven by corporate ad money, ratings-driven, infotainment, broken into these little atomized chunks where you can never have any sort of nuanced and thoughtful discussion, dependent on access for your yes. career prospects. Access is the key. Yeah, the, the, the number one and, and also the clubbiness that exists mm -hmm. now between journalists and the people that they're covering, the fact that these are their friends and this is their social circle. Like, until you change that, 
you are never, you could change all of the people that are in the current system and you would just come out with an almost identical product. Yeah. They're all interchangeable. Oh, 100%. And yeah. I think that actually, that's the one area that I did agree a lot with him, where he was like, you have to accept that you can't have colleagues. This was hard to accept in the beginning. Yeah. Right? We were like, man, we're pissing a lot of people off. Feels like you pissed this guy off. You know, my phone rings and you pissed this person off. But the more the audience showed up, I was like, it's worth it. You know, it's worth to burn these bridges that you spend years creating in order to show people how it all works. And it doesn't make a lot of people in this town happy. It can make you a pariah. I mean, it can make you ignored, which is what we've effectively become. Even as the, sh as the show gets bigger, it's inverse to its success in the circles of power, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. And he understood that. As he told his writers, he's like, you can't have friends. You will not have colleagues. It's just us. It's us against all of them. That's very much a mentality that I found and accept from him. Another area that I was trying to probe him on was how do you get these interviews? You know, because the yeah. pro biggest problem that we have is that, yeah, some people want to come on, but they want to talk about this and want to talk about their BS bill or like, I want, I only has, well, the senator only has five minutes. Screw you. I don't care. You know, I, I'm not CNN here. I don't need you necessarily. You need my access to the audience. So then it becomes a matter of how do you establish so much credibility as he does that people feel like they have to sit down. Right. With you. Well, and that's kind of where we're at right I now. I also wonder because. For example, and you brought this up in the interview, he interviews VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. Right, right. Very uncomfortable interview. Oh, oh man. I mean, John. Yeah, I was like, I don't care what you think. John is very, like, nice in these interviews. Yeah. But he's also does not let people off mm -hmm. the hook. And um, you saw that with Dennis McDonough. You saw it with Janet Yellen. You saw it with Jamie Dimon. I mean, he really comes in very prepared. This is, again, the advantage of doing a show that's periodic, that yep. you don't have to perform on a daily basis so he can spend the time to really research and dig in, in the, on these topics and prepare well for these high-level interviews. And I also think, with the show still being relatively new, like, Dennis McDonough had no idea that this is what he was getting mm, into I think you're right. when John Stewart asked right. for an interview. This guy's a comedian. He sees him as being like, oh, he's like on our right, team. Right. He used to crap all over Fox. Yeah, so like this yeah, is yeah, one of our people, right. right? I wonder if he's going to continue to have that kind of access mm -hmm. as the more of these interviews are done and these high-level officials realize that this is not going to be a cakewalk. You are going to be held to account and you are going to have your feet held to the fire because I think he has really delivered— that's been one of the most impactful parts of this show is these interviews that he's done, and he's really good at it. And you can tell that um, what he told us about you can't have friends mm -hmm. and you can't go in caring about whether this person will ever speak to you again, you can see in the interviews that he really actually follows that policy because he doesn't—again, it's not ugly. It's not like you know yelling at people just for the sake of like yelling at them. But they're very tough, and they're very well-informed, and they're very uncomfortable for the interviews. Yeah. And he there. still has choke points. I mean, the guy works for Apple, technically, right? Like, they distribute his show. I yeah. mean, it's funny, because I saw him interviewing Bob Iger, and I was like, I know that Bob Iger has a deep relationship with Apple. There was a deep mm -hmm. one going back all the way to the jobs. The Steve Jobs era, you know, they almost would have combined their companies in terms of Disney and Apple. So when I see this stuff, I'm like, you know, like, if he pushes him a little bit too hard, these guys still all have friends, like, yeah. all around town. I, it 
I just am thankful for the way that we set up our business so that that doesn't even exist because at the level that he's operating at, I mean, they will use everything to try and destroy you. So that was that's, another that's that was another question I had yeah. written out for him that I didn't get to ask was the decision to go with Apple versus right. going independent because right. clearly here's a guy who has a following who has oh, enough he could money be doing to doing what we're doing and you know he'd be super yeah right. very very easily and then you don't have any corporate pressure above you because. So far, the thing that he's gotten the most pushback on his show were the mm-hmm. comments he made about Rogan. Oh, that's right. that's right. Defending Rogan. Rogan. And right. that was extremely controversial. And then he had to do another episode oh. talking like with misinformation experts oh, that was like, frankly, a little bit cringe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that made me think about how he has a similar vulnerability with Apple as Rogan now has mm-hmm. with Spotify. And so— even some of his stuff that he's said now on Russiagate. I mean, he's critical of Russiagate. He's critical of the dismissal of the lab leak theory. Well, it's kind of okay to say those things now, but I wonder if he would have been able to say them at the time when public opinion was so far on the side of, if you're even talking about lab leak, not only are you wrong, you're racist. I can imagine, you know, a similar, like, very aggressive cancellation campaign against him with regard to to Apple um, and really bringing some pressure on him. So in any case, it was a really interesting conversation. It was really exciting to get to talk to John. I think his new show is is really, really worthwhile. I recommend it to you guys, and we're grateful for him taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. As we said, look— One of the things we talked about with John was about how to build a future media company, and I think we've really settled on it. It's a tough time right now in order to do business on the web. I'm already shaking. I'm like, are they going to take us down today for playing a clip of Putin in English, even though Mm. it's it's the news and we have to show people? The only way that we can be 100% censorship proof is because of your guys' support. We think about you all the time. We sent that John Stewart interview out to our premium subscribers early. You guys are always top of mind because— you give us the confidence to weather any storm, whatever may come. So thank yes, you. Yes, indeed. Um, and I think we've never felt that more than we feel it never. right now. You know, it's very difficult to sort through all this information. It's very difficult to feel like you can present it without worrying about what mm-hmm. the consequences are. I mean, they're reaching back to Ed Schultz into the grave yeah, to exactly. label him yeah. and cancel him. So there is a, a true climate good. of hysteria right now. So thank you guys for supporting us and making sure that we don't have to ever worry about that. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you back here next week. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. 
Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.